everybody and their neighbor. Welcome back to Gear and Gigs. I'm your host, Jetstone. So glad you guys could stop by. Today, we are so fortunate to have Travis Larson of the Travis Larson Band visiting with Trey and I in the studio virtually. Travis, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, you know, what's weird about this whole thing going on in the world is that and, and you probably know this because you talk to a lot of guys like me, that for guys like us, we almost feel a little bit more like the world is, is joining us in our, our yeah. solitude. You know, it's like I'm so used to being here by myself in this room, you know, and, and not going out for months on end that, um, you know, it's, it, the irony is I've been more social in the last couple of weeks than I have been, mm-hmm. you know, normally when I'm not on the road. Because I'm usually locked in the studio, you know, working on stuff, and so I've gotten to talk to more people like you guys and and uh, be more social and hang out with more friends virtually than I ever do in real life, you know. So, yeah, I had never Zoom called anybody until this whole thing started, and now it's like a daily event. So yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah usually, this room is me facing that way, working <laughs> on you know music and mixes, and all by myself in a windowless environment. So. You're right. I'm probably suffering like you a lot less from this social isolation than, than some. Right, right, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's been really a, a learning experience because as soon as this all started to happen, many of us hit the ground running trying to catch up with technology that we didn't really, For I'll speak for myself, I didn't even really like before as far as trying to, I'm not a huge fan of people Facebook living songs from my shows, that kind of stuff. Right. You know, um, it's, you know, it's not like I, I don't want to start a big debate on uh, all that kind of stuff, but I, you know, you want to control what's out there and you want to do a good job and you want it to sound good. And we all know how that goes. So, so this happens and all of a sudden I'm the guy trying to figure out how to get myself out there, but not make it sound like garbage. And well, yeah, I feel like every time there's a, I feel like every time there's a video of me playing somewhere live, it's the one time that I missed like the cue or something or made the weird face every other time it's perfect. But, but that's the, that's the one that gets put on, uh, on somebody's Instagram or, or a video or something. Well, yeah. And with us, it's, it's literally, you know, it's always the gig where the van was broken down and I was underneath it for an hour before the show sweating my ass off, you right. know, and <laughs> trying to fix things. And, and then all of a sudden you're thrown on stage and you're flustered and you're trying to get through and mm-hmm. everybody's shooting. Cause it's like, you know, it's a bigger night or whatever. So had many of doesn't those it, moments. Doesn't it seem like so many times you have a gig where you were in a funk or you felt like it wasn't, it wasn't what you dreamed it would be. And that's the nights people keep coming up and going, man, you rocked. You were great. Everything sounded great. You keep going. Yeah. No, no, it didn't. No. It didn't. <laughs> that's the trippy thing. And, and, you know, obviously as a professional, you have to start learning that you, you let the listener have their experience and you don't want to ruin that for them because we all know what it is to be a fan. The reason I do this is because I'm the ultimate fan. That's why I always tell people I, I totally get what it is to be a fan because I would not have spent my whole life doing this if I didn't love other musicians so right. much and the music they made. But uh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying because you come off stage some of those nights where you were just one problem after another after another and it's always for us it's always gear issues or technical things um you know or just like i say even if you consider like say a 
a, a touring vehicle breakdown, a technical thing, whatever it is during the day, it's never, I didn't practice enough or the band is right. solid. It's, it's, no, it's always I, external stuff. Right, right. So then, yeah, you, then you get up there and you're just tripping over every note and your feet and uh, everything's going wrong. And everybody's like, man, you guys had so much energy because <laughs> we were so angry, you know? Right. <laughs> or, or it's like you get to the point where you're just like, man, I don't even care. I'm just glad I'm on stage, you know, to hell with everything else. And, uh, you know, especially like you're talking about gear stuff, you know, most of the time, any, any of the situations I find myself in like that, it's like a backing track goes down or a click right. goes out or something. And you're like, all right, guess this is what we're doing. And you just, you wing it. And those are always the ones where everybody's like, gosh, y'all did so good. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Right, exactly. But, but uh, inside you're like, oh my gosh, why was that the one? Right. Well, and the converse is true. You think you did the best night of all time. You had the most perfect tone. Your solo was spot on. The drummer finally got that cue you've been working on for three weeks. And everybody goes, yeah, it was a good show. You're like, right. no, it was a great <laughs> show. What? Oh. Or, or those are the nights where you're in, you know, some backwoods, no, nowhere gig, and there was 12 people that knew who you were. Yep. And you were like, oh my goodness, we killed it tonight. We sounded so great, you know? It's like, because there's, those are the gigs where there's no pressure, right? Right. You always end up just slamming, and then you get done and go, too bad that nobody saw that. That was... Yep. <laughs> I would have been yeah, great. We had a, I used to live in Illinois and we had a show in a blizzard and we got down to the club and there was literally the bartender and that's it. Cause of course everybody stayed home. There was three feet of snow, but we were troopers. We were going to go. And so we put on the best show for that bartender he's ever seen. But unfortunately I can't prove that. Right. Well, well to tell you about, you know, my last, just my last week, which has just been completely hectic, but in my own little world here, um, trying to figure out, you know, like I said, I, I've never had any interest in doing a live streaming performance, any of that stuff. I really, truly think that people in a room is what it's all about. Right. And, but we're in the situation we're in. And uh, so you're trying to connect with people and, and hopefully make some magic out there. And so last night I did my first virtual concert ever in my life. But I, I spent a week, like all day, every day figuring out exactly every idiosyncrasy of the pieces of gear and how to deal with, you know, it was a Facebook live thing. Right. And there's so many issues with Facebook live where, okay, the camera's backwards. So you have to figure out how to flip it. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I had tested this thing 30 times. I had run different pieces of gear, run it privately, you know, for like, just, just run it with music through it for an hour to see if it would hold up. Right. Some pieces of gear threw me off. Some didn't. So I get it all dialed down to I've got this, this iPad and this interface and this blah, blah, blah. And this all works. And then last night, five minutes to hit, I go in there and all of a sudden the aspect ratio makes me look like an old Bruce Lee movie. I, I'm just stretched and the top of my head is cut off. And, and I mean, guys, I've done every test on this imaginable for the last yeah. week. And, and for the last month, uh, Dale Moon and my drummer and I have been testing stuff because he had to start teaching virtually. Right. So I was initially, I dove into this helping him and learning more than I ever want to know about any of this stuff. I could tell you everything about this Zoom format versus whatever else format, you know, what does what. Um, so, 
So I, anyway, I go on there and all of a sudden the aspect ratio is jacked up and I'm like, why is this looking like this? You know, then all of a sudden you're frantic because you're like, I'm right. on in five minutes. There was a, we had a thousand people live last night. I'm like mm -hmm. thousand people waiting for me beyond. And then pretty soon you're four minutes late, five minutes late. So then the texts start coming, then the emails, <laughs> you know, it's like, where are you? What's going on? Um, so I, you know, I was flipping this iPad and trying to get it. I, I got the, I, I got, uh, you guys know who Larry Mitchell is? Good friend of mine, um, guitar player, Grammy winner. He was at the X Jam. He sat in with me at, at the jam at the end and he played uh, last year's X Jam with us. But I, I, he's tech wizard guy. Like he is, you know, every Apple product and every interface. And so I instantly FaceTimed him and I was like, how do I fix this? You know, and he was just like, you know, take your, your iPad, tilt it like that, tilt it back, see if it corrects it. So it does correct it, but it's still reversed. Then I hit reverse and then it comes back. So it's, it's right, you know, the, the left and the right are correct, but all of a sudden I look like a Bruce Lee movie again. And basically it's taking the 169 and converting it to 4.3 on a 16.9 screen for no reason. Right. That's right. getting pretty technical for people out there, but I know you guys know what I'm talking about because I see all the gear behind you. Right. So. Um, so anyway, and I, I just wanted to be a guitar player to be clear. I didn't want to learn how to do any of this either. I just right? really wanted to play guitar. Right. And we, I mean, and this has been going on for, you know, a decade growing and growing and growing. We're now we're all of a sudden we're television producers and we're figuring out, you know, en engineers and all this stuff. When, when we wanted to rock at one time in our lives, right? I just want to hit power chords and put my finger in the air. That's the move right there. That's it. Yep. yep. That's it. So, uh, so anyway, long story short, or long story longer, um, uh, I didn't fix it last night. I, I got rid of, I, I had to make a choice between Bruce Lee movie or, or playing left-handed when I'm a right-handed guitar player. So I went with the left-handed and I quickly pulled all the TLB logos out of the shot because they all said BLT. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh, man. It was what it was. But the beauty is, because of all the work I'd done, it sounded fantastic. I couldn't have been, it couldn't have sounded better, but I was upside down and I couldn't figure out why. And another friend of mine the night before, Andy McKee, had done the same exact thing and he couldn't right. figure it out. He goes, I, I don't know why I'm backwards, but it, I am. I feel like it's not like all of us musicians have kind of run to all this technology, but it really wasn't designed for us. And so we're kind of, we're used to thinking about stuff on the fly, like how can I make this work? And you would think that somebody would have thought of the simplicities of this, but they really didn't. And, right. and you know, feeling like you have to sync audio and video, that's a pretty, it's kind of an, a more in-depth thing with any of my friends that are videographers or, or things like that. So we come to this, we go, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And it's yeah. not the case right. at all. And, and one of the misleading things you see on all the late night shows and things like that is guys will do a Zoom uh, performance like what we're doing right now, but mm -hmm. they don't understand how they do it and that they're using a video editing software after the fact. Right. I'm just saying that as for anyone listening to this, I'm saying that as a helpful hint because when you saw, you know, like for instance, they had the, was it the One World concert the other night? And you see the Rolling Stones, you know, all synced up. That's the whole reason there, you know, I could see exactly what they did. They started with Mick, he played rhythm guitar, mm. as solid as he could. They added Keith, 
they added, you know, uh, Ronnie and they added Charlie and Charlie wasn't even playing drums. Like, I'm not sure where the drum sounds were coming from. He was air drumming. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you, you can see that they just recorded each performance and then synced them up in a software and made it look like Zoom, you know? Right. And it probably well, took an hour, but- it, There uh, was one on, uh, on Facebook the other day that was uh, the ska band Goldfinger. Uh-huh. That, that they, I mean, it was all pre-recorded stuff and they just right. synced up all the videos together. They played to a exactly. clay and they were in studio, but it, from me watching it, who, you know, love the song that they did, like, it was cool to see. I, I knew, you know, it was kind of suspending disbelief that I knew it wasn't really live and they weren't sure. really jiving, but they, they sold it. And, yeah, yeah. you know, that's, that's cool. Like that we can still do things like that, even though it is a little bit smoke and mirrors. Uh, I'm to- I'm totally into it. I mean, Andy yeah. Timmons stuck one up right away, and mm-hmm. uh, and it was like a you know, I it's funny because I have the most that friendly that band in the world because we play so consistently to like the record for ninety yeah. percent of what we do that it would be a piece of cake for us to do that if all of us had a reasonable technology to even do what we're doing right now, which um, any fans of my band would know that's Jennifer Young. She's totally, she hates technology and she has a 10 year old computer. And when we do our chats on Saturday, she always looks like it's not even by design, but it's funny because she's the one girl in the chat and she's got like this haze over her and it's just because her camera's so old. <laughs> but, but it looks like you guys remember the old uh, perfume commercials where they would like, you know, it was like, like Liz Taylor be totally hazy, you know? So that's what it looks like she's doing when it's just like, she's not even trying to do that. It's like, oh, you look just gorgeous. This <laughs> works so well on yeah. me. Me and Dale, you know, it's like every freckle and, you know, whatever. <laughs> so. Well, the nice thing about doing this is that we're all, we've all grown so used to seeing all the late night hosts do this, this exact same thing. I mean, normally this would look like as what I'm looking at on my screen is just a video call, like between me and my mom, like a Skype. But now it looks like, oh, it's like a Jimmy Kimmel show. Right. right, right. So how do you guys feel about artists like myself? And I, you can go back through my Facebook feed and, and literally look at the angst as it's discussed and worked out over the last month. But I originally posted a thing basically asking my fans how they felt about the streaming thing in general and uh, artists asking for donations, that sort of thing. And I am a lifelong, I've never asked anybody for anything, ever. Wait, is he putting the touch on his tray? Is that what he's doing right here? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, an, uh, let me give you my investment opportunity. Let me give you my PayPal now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, All right, what's the Patreon page? Go ahead, man. Just go ahead and give it to me. Right, right. So how, but how do you guys feel about that? Because um, there's such a perception, and you see artists go on there. Friends of mine, even when this started, I, and I know them, and I know mm-hmm. the kind of money they have, but I also know situations that they were in. And right. so there's a perception, you know, if you're fairly well-known and you're doing tours, you know, even in my boat, I'm not the biggest well-known guitar player in the world, but I, I tour constantly and i tour with the aristocrats constantly and you know guys like andy timmons and mike keneally and tony mcalpine and so you look at that and you think i mean when i was 19 i would have looked at myself and thought he lives in a castle and he's got <laughs> you know he's yeah. got wait like, are you saying you don't live in a castle it's well, it's a small castle this is pretty much it it's full of gear and cases and yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but 
Um, so, so you see the haters online and that was my, my kind of thing going in was it's like, oh man, I know you got to ignore them and all, but I'm just an old school guy. I started in the other paradigm where, you know, you didn't let everybody in and you put out the band playing the music and that was kind of it. And you let people interject their own magic to that. Right. right. Um, there's their own, own perceptions and mystery. And that's kind of part of the cool part about it. When we all watch Zeppelin and stuff, those guys lived in castles and they had wolf dogs and stuff, right? They really did live in castles. Right, yeah. right? Well, so, you know, the, because of the, 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 the financial flip that the industry did where you used to make money recording and then you'd go play live to support that and to drive those sales. And then, you know, digital flipped that all over. So now live is where you make the money to, and you give away the music, essentially. I, I think you kind of have to as a fan understand that look this guy this is what he does full time this is his gig this is his whole livelihood and if suddenly that's shut down or diminished or or changed you know we got to step up as fans and support you well and and god bless you for having that viewpoint and and i would say uh he's gonna give me the patreon page now right yeah exactly <laughs> www die <laughs> well what do you have do you have a way for people to help support you in this time well, we do now because we started doing, um, we started with Q&A sessions on Saturday nights and we're doing that every Saturday on our Facebook pages. Uh, it's called Outside the Inn, which is a song of ours. And it's called, uh, right. so it's Travis Larson Man Outside the Inn Q&A slash discussion. Right. And we're, we've been doing those every Saturday night at seven o'clock Pacific. And I, yeah, I stuck up a PayPal and a Venmo, but First, I stuck up all the merch pages and the download pages right. and all that kind of stuff. If you're new to the band, check it out. If you want to buy something, great. Um, you know, but th there is the reality that, you know, some of our audience, you know, we, we have some people out there that have a lot of dough and their hobby is really digging into, they're geeking out on guitars, you know. Um, there's, for, for years, we're kind of a Bay Area band and the Silicon Valley millionaire guy has been a huge fan of ours for a long time, you know, because um, they're techies right. and we're playing technical music and that's what those guys do on weekends. So that's, that's a reality of, of uh, who's out there. So you kind of go, well, I mean, do, do I go to those guys? You know, so, so I stuck that stuff up there. I haven't been pushing it hard and I've never done like a... a, a What's the thing that you do the fundraisers with? I've never done that. Um, Crowdfunding and stuff pages. Yeah, like I've never done anything like that. And I've never done anything like that to make a record. I've just figured out how, how, how to can do we it. do this. Yeah, and then... Well, isn't it the, the modern digital equivalent of busking on the street corner and putting out a hat? I mean, that's yeah. a time-honored tradition for musicians. I, I think that's yeah. okay. Well, Which I mean... Interestingly enough, that's last night that what I said to people, because there's a couple of little gigs that I do when I'm not on the road with the band and I do them solo and I play a little, um, like a cool little brewery pub that overlooks Morro Bay, California. So it's got a glass, big, huge window behind the stage. It's beautiful. And I go down there and generally speaking, it's so I can play with friends of mine guys that'll come to town and we'll jam on anything we want and you don't really make a spectacle of it. And maybe half the crowd shows up because it's us and maybe half of them are tourists. Right. And, and that's part of the fun because it puts you back in the idea that you have to win people over mm -hmm. and it keeps me 
remembering how to really do that because when I started, I toured Borders Books and Music and every dive bar in the world for years Yes. before I could play <laughs> gigs where most of the people at the gig knew what they were in for. And right. so, so it's good to do that. It keeps you sharp. But the point is, so last night when I went on, I said, let's treat it like the, the place is called the Libertine. Let's, let's treat this like a Libertine gig or there's a place up in Hayward, California called the Bistro that we play for free when we're doing warm-up shows before tours. And uh, treat it like that. And if you've got a few extra bucks, even a couple bucks, because if there's a thousand people watching and everyone can give like a right. dollar, right? Then that's like a huge help to a guy like me who all of a sudden I'm like, okay, how am I going to pay rent? You know, what's... Right. Like, I mean, we were like right on the edge always. And that's just the reality of it. You know? Well, I, I think that, you know, as someone who's grown up, uh, you know, I was sold the dream of being musicians through buying records and going to shows and, and, and you know, wanted to be just a touring guy. All of my friends that are super successful have had to diversify over the years. Sure. They'll tour with their own band. They'll be a hired gun for another band. They're doing studio gigs in the meantime. So like I was already kind of in this mindset of uh, just kind of do whatever you can to live the dream. And the dream is not necessarily for me living in a castle. It's getting to do what I love throughout the course of the day and being able to meet all of my financial obligations. And that's exactly right. more or less it to not have that financial aspect drive what I'm playing. I still want to play what I love to play and, and everything. So when, when everything kind of went to this new model and I, I think that, you know, it's, it's been going this way anyway. And now the, the pandemic and everything is, has kind of funneled it and, and focused it a little bit more, you know, I've never really had an issue with an artist going, Hey, we don't make a ton if we can't tour, or even when we do tour, we don't make a ton. If you want another record, you know, and, and you want to contribute, that would be awesome. If you don't, we'll figure it out. But it, there's a direct correlation between uh, a fan's desire for new music or new touring dates and things and their willingness to kind of put their money where their mouth is because the industry doesn't pay what it used to. Right. And, and I think everybody kind of knows that now, whether you're a fan or a musician. Um, so there's, a, there's less of a stigma, at least for like the the sphere that I've found myself in of, I mean, yeah, if, if you're asking for money it, it or you want to put it like, yeah, man, I'm asking for money. Yeah. That's still kind of a, a weird way to say it, but you're like, you know, I, I still have to afford a place to live that isn't a tour bus, you know, for well, at least and half from, the year. From a fan standpoint, if, if you're, if the artist that you like is doing it full time, their art's going to be better. You right, know? So exactly as a fan, right. it's in your best interest that they don't have a day gig, you know, or they don't have to, to do 14 different things and try to keep it all straight. If, if, if Travis can concentrate on his next album and doesn't have to worry about financing it or worrying about his rent, the album's going to be better. He'll be more relaxed. Right. And you know, it's an interesting thing too, because um, I mean, obviously I, I have always completely owned, we chose this life. It's an, it's a risky life. It's edgy. I don't hold anyone else responsible for that, but sure. for you to say that, that's exactly, uh, you know, even me as a fan of other people that completely makes sense. And the idea that, you know, oh, this guy doesn't have to work like I do, but we all know 
we, we all do. know. Yeah, it's just we, different. Yeah. I, yeah. And here's the reality of being a, a, you know, I'm a medium level touring musician. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not in buses. I'm in a van for the last 20 years and I'm touring, you know. Um, so, so the thing is, I, you know, I'm, I, I've learned everything about having to be able to do that. You know, when I say underneath the van, fixing the van, I mean, right. that's, that kind of stuff is real and loading gear in is real and every day. So as some background, uh, my dad was a uh, union uh, construction guy and a commercial salmon fisherman when I was growing up. And so my job growing up as a kid and a teenager was commercial fisherman. So there's, I, I will say, the amount of work that I do when I'm doing this out there in the world, like when we're touring and things that mm. it's, it's not really much less work than commercial fishing. And we all know what right. that is. We've watched the shows, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it smells I, better, hopefully, though. it smells better and you don't get seasick, but <laughs> I get car sick. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and I get air sick. All that stuff is a reality, you know? So, um, you know, and that's not complaining. That's the reality. I, I, like I said, I chose this. And, and the thing is, you can't very well get a couple hundred people to show up and watch you commercial fish and tell you what a great job you're doing and you changed their lives. And thank you so much. <laughs> not you know a I mean? spectator sport fishing, no. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, okay, you're feeding people, but they're not there telling you that and, and making you feel fulfilled and connected to other human beings and like you're you're creating a group of good energy, you know, right. and, and especially like in the world we're talking about today, you know, it's like so nice to see people in a room like-minded or not that come together for a common energy that makes them feel a certain way and everybody's happy. And so, I mean, Tom Petty said it best that music is the only real magic he ever saw. And mm-hmm. that's kind of the way I feel, you know, so. Well, I mean, you're right. There's a reward to it that's beyond financial and i feel like for a lot of us and it sounds like you're the same way it's that's part of what we're chasing it's not really the the money like yeah sure whatever we just want to be able to keep doing it because of the other things we get from it right i mean the the reward of of being able to be you know even if it's like you said in a in a van you know most of the tours that i've done are in a 15 passenger that we converted into a semi-livable condition yeah and you drive you drive all night, you get to the gig, you work all day, you play the show, and then you just rinse and repeat. But, you know, the hour that you have before the gig and you walk around downtown with your best friends or the people that you really, really enjoy, and then you go get to share what you love with other people that love what you're doing, it, there's there's nothing that – there's no uh, flight of stairs and Ampeg, you know, 810 that wasn't worth – all of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the things that J- Jennifer Young and I, we used to book tours around the food channel. I mean, when you're as independent as we are, yeah, you're in complete control. So we would look at, you know, it's like we'd see some show where it's like, oh man, look at that sausage place in Chicago. We got to go there. <laughs> yes. You know, so I mean, just stupid things like that, even if it's, you know, just like things like clinic tours or stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's like, oh, we've never checked that out. One of the things we did a few years ago, and we had the uh, we, we were in the South doing, we had a couple of gigs where Larry Mitchell was with us and we had an off day and uh, we're 
you know, because we tour and there's only, you don't get a chance to see many shows, but we all became Walking Dead fans, you know? Right. Um, and uh, so we, we were like, I wonder if you can go where they filmed that. And it's out here in the middle of nowhere. So we go get on, you know, start looking it up. And it turns out that these, you know, The Walking Dead is filmed in those areas for a reason because they're completely run down. They don't really have to do anything to make them look that right. way. Um, so, so we go out to this town and it's me and Jennifer and Larry Mitchell in the deep south with right. Larry, who's 6'5 or something like that, black guy with dreadlocks and a cowboy hat. So that in itself is a funky adventure. Right. right where where we are and then um we're basically in this town where it's a crossroads there's like a there's like a, a train track and a two-lane road mm -hmm. one restaurant and everything is run down and all all the houses are overgrown yards and stuff and uh, there's like some rundown brick buildings that probably used to be some kind of a steel mill something like that mm -hmm. and the mayor of the town is running this restaurant and the deal is you show up there at five o'clock, they show you the episode of Walking Dead that was filmed right there. And then he, he feeds you dinner and then he takes you on a walk around the town and he's preserved all the, he owns the apartments and stuff they used for the interior shot. So mm -hmm. he's preserved it all. So you go in here and there's actually like they, for super Walking Dead gigs, they had, it was Morgan's apartment. So he, he was crazy, oh, yeah. episode, right? So he's written all over the walls, all this crazy stuff. It's all still there. And uh, so cool. So anyway, but there's nobody, you know, it's not, it's not Universal Studios. This is like a right. guy who's like, how can I make a few dollars off of this? Right. So this Robert, is didn't the, Robert Johnson just down at that corner, make the deal with the devil. Wasn't that totally it's yeah. that town, man. It is that town. And there's like nobody there. And so uh, there, there's like, two sides of the town there's the people that think this guy is the greatest mayor ever and then there's like the really really conservative people that are frightened to death of this you know what i mean i don't want to get too controversial about that but you know what i'm talking about so um yeah so, so we're walking around the town mm -hmm. and uh and then at the end of the tour he's got a, a bucket where you throw like basically tips and, and he's got, he's through the whole tour, he's had kids dressed up as zombies from the town, like, like kids after school, right? right? And at the end, he disperses all the tips amongst these kids. So you've got like maybe oh, a dozen cool. kids that get to dress up like zombies every day. Yeah. And then he gives them each like 20 bucks. And I'm like, how, how much cooler could it be? Like, right. how, is, is there anything wrong with that, right? Anyway. Right. So these are the kind of funky adventures you get into being a musician where, mm -hmm. I mean, I've, it's just like endless stories of that kind of stuff where you get out there in the world and you, you see things that the rest of the world doesn't. And that's mm -hmm. why in a, in a thing like what we're dealing with now, when you're watching all the, the comments of extreme sides, um, can, I, can, I make, can I use colorful language on this podcast somewhat? We've got a bleep machine. You go right ahead. Well, you decide whether you want to bleep it or not. But uh, uh, Henry Rollins has a saying that I have adopted, which is um, knowledge without mileage is bullshit. Yep. And so if you don't have your feet on the ground in many different places, at some point in your life, get out there and, and talk to different people from different parts of the world. You know, generally speaking, people are good, but they're, they're, some of them are too sheltered. Right. And they just don't understand. Uh, they don't get out of their bubble enough to to understand the realities of 
what's you know what's real, what's not, and that's how you get some of the conspiracy theory stuff and everything. But but it, when you get out there as a musician, that's one of the huge benefits is you meet everybody and you make friends with everybody. Right. And music brings I, people together. That's yeah. one of the things I've always enjoyed about playing shows is that you're not part of the establishment itself, right? You're not part of the staff that's setting up anything, but yet they kind of treat you like you work there. You can go almost anywhere in the place and, mm-hmm. and you're just afforded this luxury of just kind of ignoring you, you know, and letting you be. And yeah. then the audience is the same way. They, they kind of let you be, you know, you can float amongst them if you want to. So you kind of have this little self propelled bubble that you can walk around in and pop out of when you want to, but kind of hide within when you want to. And that's one of the things I've always loved. Right. Right. And just, uh, you know, different types of people, you know, where you've got a, a, basically a West coast surfer guy like myself who, you know, I've, I've said this many times at clinics and things where I music has afforded me the ability to be really good friends with, you know, a, uh, a 80 year old Southern black guy or a 20 year old punk rocker in Detroit with a Mohawk right. or, and, you know, and it's like really connected to these people and there's such different walks of life, but because we're all musicians, yeah, it's like you check in with people and you make friends with people where they're almost family. And you, you know, if I was a guy that had just stayed the course and done what I was supposed to do, I, I might have a different view of the world and I understand why people get in those bubbles. But when you get out there and you start realizing at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all kind of trying to get the same place. You know, everybody kind of just wants to be safe and fulfilled and have people around them that love them. And, uh, and it's all the kind of noise that starts to, to muck that up when you're, when you're not exposed to enough people and uh, educated enough, maybe it's the right word, you know. Well, we have to be tolerant as musicians yeah. because you might meet somebody with a purple mohawk and tattoos and, and ear gauges, and maybe that's not your thing, but you can't discount him as a musician because that might be the best musician you've talked to in a year. That's exactly you know, right. Or he might have the insight that, that you've never thought of, and then some old dude shows up, and once again, you can't discount him as some elderly person because his musical wisdom and knowledge or whatever might just be intense. So I think being in the industry has forced you and, and, and anybody to kind of be non-judgmental. Right. You know, well, I, there's like a glass ceiling that you kind of reach because everybody wants to be in their bubble. And music is the thing that typically breaks that because you, it's scary and it's different and you don't want to, you know, change or nobody really wants to go about changing their worldview, but music makes it easy because when you care more about the music than you do about the life choices of the person that's standing next to you, you just care about the fact that they know the lyrics as well as you do. Right. And there's a, there's a pureness in that, that I think is, I mean, maybe because I'm a musician and, and we are, that we feel like we're special in that, but there's a, there oh, is a pureness. Special, man. What? We are special. special. No, we, <laughs> My mom says I'm the most handsomest man, and I don't disagree. But uh, wait, wait, that beard is doing it for me. I told you a couple days ago. You should have seen me. <laughs> but it, it, you know, it's it's a cool experience, and I, I definitely agree with what you say. What you're saying, and you know, the any time you quote Henry Rollins, you're going to be going to be in the uh, 
going to be in the wheelhouse that I like, but it's, uh, you know, one of those things where I, I don't know if I'd like the person that I was without music right? And, and without the, the ability to see all of these different walks of life, because it's so easy in an isolated system to, to go like this and go, yeah, I don't like that. Or I don't like this person, or I don't agree with these choices. But when you put two people in a room together, it's really hard to look them in the eye and go, yeah, I don't care. Right. Because obviously like we, we do as people, people are awesome. Individuals are awesome. Humanity as a whole can be kind of obtuse and, and right. And closed minded. So yeah, anything that, that gives people the ability to bridge that gap seamlessly without them even realizing it is, is uh, the way to go. Interesting thing uh, on along those lines. And, uh, you know, Henry has been a huge inspiration to me on many levels. I mean, obviously, musically, that would probably confuse people that aren't familiar with him. But because uh, he's, you know, a completely different walk of life in that regard. But as far as a guy that's relentlessly out there driven, that's one of the reasons I've had the drive to do what I do and be able to do it on the level I do it for so long where I've, I've got I mean, I'm not going to, I start, I felt like I was going to start bragging, but I was going to basically say, <laughs> I've got the only band that I know of that has been solidly a band at the level that we're at mm-hmm. doing the music we're doing for as long as we have. And I don't know any other band. I mean, I know certainly, you know, Mike Keneally and Bear for Dolphins and all that stuff. I know lots of guys that have been playing with the same guys for decades, but not just those guys. Right. I've had just this band and never ventured into another project. The, uh, I mean, most recently, the only thing that has come up even close to that is we did the tour with Andy Timmons. Uh, was it last year or the year before for his um, a 20th, 25th anniversary of, um, I think, his first solo record. And mm-hmm. he needed Jennifer Young to fill in on bass. So we shared Jennifer Young with, with him for that tour. And that was like, you know, for us, it was just like, wow, one of us is playing with somebody else. Like, <laughs> not that we don't let that happen, but it just doesn't happen, you know? And so um, the drive that it takes to do that, going back to what you were saying about so many guys having other side gigs and so many projects and diversifying, you know, if you, if you have one band and that's what you're doing and you can, uh, you're playing non-commercial music in America with no real support other than your own independent label, that's it's a lot of work, you know. So, uh, so Henry was kind of a huge inspiration to just do it. You know, it's like nobody's going to do if no one's doing this for you, just go do it anyway. Just do right. it. Figure out how to do it. Make it happen. You know, and and then Steve Morris always said, you know, by nature of if he if he writes music that he likes, he figures what, there's like seven billion people in the world or whatever it is. By nature of human beings having some similarities, there has to be some people out there that are going to like this because I like it, right? So it's, the, it's getting more difficult to find them because there's so much noise and traffic right. out there, but, but you just kind of go for it, you know? When it um, reaches a point where you can't not do this, if you well, love it this much. That's, that's the thing, and I, I say this a lot. Um, I've, I've used this line a few times recently, but uh, Billy Joel did a... Um, like a master class talk at a college on Long Island to music students. And a, a guy stood up and said, you know, I'm, I'm just getting to that point where I'm trying to decide, it, do I get out of school and do I go the route of being the guy that gets the job or do I 
do I try and pursue this music career? And Billy Joel said, well, since you're asking me, you already know the answer, don't you? And I, I, I was like, pretty profound because anyone that does it, you know, again, on the level that I do it, which is, you know, uh, it's a forced issue. I'll put it that way. Right. You know, it's not, I didn't get signed to Warner Brothers in 1988 and I didn't have, you know, a huge thing behind me, you know, like, like Joe Satriani had a lot of things in a row that worked right. so huge at the right time. And he played with Mick Jagger and he was, you know, it's like, there's so many things that go into a guy getting that big. Right. And I haven't seen anyone get that big in a long time because I don't know if it's even possible. Right. But no, there's too much noise. Yeah. Right. So, so if, the thing if is, if he hadn't played with Bowie, we wouldn't know about him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I prefer SRV with Don Johnson. There's a there's a random. Oh, <laughs> I don't oh, really. That's, that's a controversial one. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't really prefer that. I just thought I'd throw that out there and uh, see if anybody even remembered. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he actually played on Don Johnson's record. If you want to get deep and go find that. Well, we're going to have to. We're going to have to. Yeah. 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 Oh my god. My, my other favorite guilty pleasure is. Um, the soundtrack for Death Wish 2 as done by Jimmy Page, which I've had on vinyl since I was eight years old or nine years old. But uh, now it's kind of becoming a thing. People are starting to find it and realize yeah. it's the one true Jimmy Page solo record. Like it's, cool. it's all instrumental, you know, yeah. but it's like uh, Eddie Van Halen did the, uh, the soundtrack to uh, was it wildlife, right? Uh, I don't know about that. I know he did Twister. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did that. But earlier on, he did Wildlife, which I think was the, wasn't the sequel to like uh, Fast Times Ridgemont High or something. Okay. And now I'm going to yeah. have to check there that you out. Go. Now we got another one to go look up. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other rabbit hole is, you know, artists that do uh, soundtracks and how many movies you found out about or vice versa because an artist did the soundtrack. Interesting. A lot of people ask me, you know, why don't you do soundtracks? And it's like, if anyone understands the music business, it's, yeah, why don't I? You know, <laughs> I yeah. I'm right here. Right. <laughs> you know, anybody oh, that's man. making a movie and wants to like throw some work my way, I am all about that adventure. So, so how do you guys feel about where this is going to go as far as I, I, I obviously think it's going to be a while before people are secure enough to come together in big groups. Sure. Um, are they though? I mean, I, I think they will. I always think people are going to have to get out and interact with people. But is it going to be a, a lingering thing for years? It'll be a slow kind of gradual buildup again. You know, uh, venues that have seating maybe, you know, only sell every other seat or every third seat or something to kind of ease people back into the thing. I mean, I, I don't think that this will have changed the world forever in that regard, but right. it'll definitely hopefully, uh, you know, teach us something about how clean or not clean we are as a society. Right, right. But I, I, I think that it'll go back. But, you know, we're, we're in a phase right now, it seems like to me, where it's, everything's unknown. We can't, we can't see it. So we're, we're always panicked about, did I wash my hands enough? What did I step in? Right. Did that guy touch something? And that, you know, fear comes from unknown. As soon as you know, you're not afraid anymore. You just start dealing with it because we don't know. And there's so many unknowns. I mean, right now, we don't even know if you can get it twice, you know, or right. if you get it, will it affect your mind or whatever? I think once we know more about it and there's some sort of a, an actual treatment, 
where we go, well, if you get it, we can do this. And, and this yeah. has, you know, this percentage of, of doing well, or, you know, once there's a vaccine or anything, I think that's going to blow the whole thing wide open. And until then, I think it's going to be hit or miss with waves and pockets and, sure. you know, and, and not to be a naysayer, open. but what's a little spooky about it is, We've been through things similar to this, and we still don't have vaccines for a lot of those things. That's what's right. spooky about it, right? So, I mean, it's true, but I think in this case, we've got more concentrated efforts around the world trying to find cures for this than we've ever seen. Right. In, you know, other than maybe for cancer or something, but you know, I mean, as far as concerted efforts and let's let's push the the eighteen months to twelve and. You know, well, let's try. Right. I mean, they're already trying human trials. On, uh, that's so early compared to what they would normally do. So sure. I think that the, I think the reticence to to say yes, this is going to work is going to be diminished because we we all want it so bad. I mean, it's not like part of the world is shut down. It's the whole place. Right. Right. That's never happened before. And it's hard to dispute that. <laughs> but, and, and I would hope that you know, with the uh, the connectivity that we have. I mean, the last pandemic we saw like this historically was in the early 1900s, right. uh, we didn't have the communication. We weren't interconnected. We didn't have the technology. I would hope that maybe this is a sign of we learned something and, right. and got out ahead of this. I mean, when, when all of this first started happening, the argument I heard was, well, it's not that bad yet. Well, do you really want to wait till it's that bad to react or do you want to get out ahead of it? And, you know, I'm hoping that the, you know, realistically the best case scenario is, the loudest people on the internet go, well, that really wasn't that bad. Well, I would hope it wasn't. Maybe because we did something and maybe we were a little proactive and a little overprotective, um, you know, of, of everything right. because, you know, things bounce back and things adapt and yeah, uh, it's, it's a weird situation. And, and, you know, like Jet said earlier, there's not really a way to be completely, certain about anything because it all is so unknown, but I mean, well, as, maybe I'm just trying to be hopeful. As an artist that goes out and plays a lot and I have, you know, the people that, that come to see me, I, you know, I've, I've got a really r close, real relationship, you know, with these people. I mean, it's, it's a love. It's a very small microcosm of like a rush type fan base yeah. you know i mean that's not an exaggeration i mean they're so i play gigs and and because i'm not a huge huge star like that i i see everybody and i hug everybody and i know most of their faces even you know i mean they're you know it's like Obviously, you get to a point where you can't remember names, but you you know the guys that show yeah. up every time. You know the guys that drove four six hours to see you, mm -hmm. and uh, so so that part of it, you know. I mean, I I really if it, if if I can't go back to that someday, it would be really disappointing because that's that's what it's about to me. It's about yeah. connecting, and it's about taking. It's about getting in a room, packing too many people in there everybody vibrating on a positive level and and feeling the same thing you know that's that's why we do this and uh and it's it's you can do a, a facsimile digitally like this and i actually had a really good uh experience and a lot of great interaction with everybody last night and they're interacting with each other because fans know fans right right it's like right. oh hey you're here and so that's really sweet to see but it's not the same thing as getting into a room and uh, you know, everybody's like 
sweating and they're, you know, it's loud and, and it's, there's obviously that's, that's a different kind of magic. So, um, you know, I, I really, we have to get back there. Right. Yeah. Nobody wants it more than musicians. And, and like Trey said, music is about breaking down barriers and creating community. And, and when you can't do that and you have to do it this way, at least we're trying to do that and we're, we're keeping that right. flame alive. But I think all of us, you know, just want that communal experience again, because that's sure. why we did it. Right. I, yep. I was told by, by a guy when I was really young and I was learning to play and, and I said, man, I, I, I want to be a famous rock star. And he said, well, just keep in mind, if what you want out of music is money, that's what you'll get out of music. And that made me think, you know, what do I really want? And it wasn't money. Don't tell my right. wife that. It wasn't money. <laughs> that's, that's a side benefit and I'll take it, but that's not why I do it. And that's not why I have to do it, to use trade right. words. You know, it's, it's a compulsion. I, I have to keep doing it one form or another, right. even if it's just talking to musicians because I can't go play with our band. You know, we were gearing up to go out on tour and now <laughs> not so much. I, I had somebody say to me once, I've never met anybody that tried so hard to make less money in their life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurts. Oh, because it's true. Oh, and the irony <laughs> the, the, my chest. Right. The, the, the irony of it is, you know, I, I know I, I know how to make money, you know, right. and, and but it's just not it's there's you know i i it's it's you you can't you can't want to do this and be unintelligent like almost all of us have have that thing like man i can go do this i can make a ton of money but the the thought process when you when you work through that you go oh my gosh my soul is starting to crush itself just thinking about it like you can't and it really does feel that way too, doesn't it? It's like, yeah. I don't know if you know the movie, Joe versus the volcano is one of my favorite movies. And at one point he's talking about how the office and the, the environment and the fluorescent lights are, are sucking out his soul. Yeah. He can feel it leaving his body. It's like, that's how you, you feel if you're a musician doing a non-music gig. Yeah, well, and to, so I'll put some clarification on that because I can picture the guy that's watching this that does that job going, you know, screw you, I have to do that job every day, right? And, and I had to do and There's so that's, that's that. exactly right we've all done a bunch of different stuff right but the thing, yeah right but the thing is um and i we i did this uh a webcast similar to this monday with andy timmons and mike keneally and teddy kumpel and you know i get overly honest about stuff but going back to the billy joel statement of mm -hmm. if you're asking me whether you should do this you already know the answer which is no you shouldn't because you're asking Right. right. Um, when we say we didn't have a choice, most of the people that dig into stuff like this, if you have the focus to get to a certain level um, and the guys that I'm talking about that are just like ridiculous virtuosic levels, right. there's something wrong. And, and, I, and I, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah and, and, and that's, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, there goes back. Phone calls. Oh my God. No, no, but well, and I, I can get away with that. I feel like because Steve Vai will readily admit that he was, there was some broken stuff when he was younger. He actually, you know, absolutely had, um, you know, and he's said this, so I don't mind saying it. He's had uh, all kinds of overwhelming like um, anxiety issues and, right. and, and things like that, that he dealt with. And so, there's something going back where a guy is 
digging into something so hard and so single-mindedly because you're trying to, in my case, I was trying to create an environment for myself with music where I could create my own magic, you know, much right. like I say, when we get in a room with people and I can do, I could do that with myself. I could sit there and I could, I could create something in the air out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the room felt better. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, there's a reason for that. And, uh, and so a lot of people that do this and they do it on a, you know, they're, these are not the people that wanted to be rock stars. They may have ended up rock stars because they were so driven and they got so good and the mm -hmm. cream rises to the top or, or can or did at one time that that's why they ended up there. But anybody at that level, uh, you know, and, and myself included, there's something broken. Like we had something up in our childhood or we had a, something wrong with our brains. We had trouble dealing with stuff. And so you end up, this is this is the outlet, and and when you don't really have the choice. I don't know, Trey. What do you think? You, you think you had might have had something broken in there? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, but we all we all kind of know, like it's and it's not necessarily like a negative per se. I mean, yeah, it's, it, no. it may have sucked, or it may be something that we deal with. It made you it, who you are, and yeah, now I mean, you are this, right? Yeah. And, and even Getty Lee said the band. I mean, those guys had screwed up childhoods, right? They were they've talked about it and uh he said the band gave us our identity the band was something that allowed us to be somebody that people would like and that that you know it made us cool and it man it gave us a magic that we could work together as a team and all that stuff right and everybody knows that music like in schools for instance you know uh works parts of your brain makes you more intelligent on other mm -hmm. things all that stuff but um I guess uh, my point in all saying this all was a little bit of the defense of the guy that works that that day job that's like kind of a straightforward job and he looks at guys like us and all he sees is the stage and thinks, you know, this guy's got it so easy. I mean, it, the money for nothing joke, right? Right. Like, like <laughs> right. So, but you got to realize when you get older, you start realizing anybody at a super, super high level of anything is there because of some reason of going back to something, yeah, right. you know, I mean, whether it's a really successful, amazing actor or, uh, you know, a painter, or, I mean, we're all this far from cutting our ears off. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so true though so and, and this is what helps us cope and be normal and have a community and be able to you know and for like i mentioned about when we started this uh you know i said for at least speaking for myself i'm i'm here by myself most of the time right and so i feel like the rest of the world is kind of living my life for a moment and you know, when I see everybody so up in arms about it's so hard, it's we're just trying to keep some people safe. Right. It's, yeah, I don't I, I believe me, I completely get the financial aspect. But if you take the financial aspect away, is it really all that bad to like have some quiet time or some more time with your family? Right. Or and it brings you know maybe it brings things to the surface that we don't want to deal with. Where maybe you don't like being with your family all the time. You know. Right. <laughs> all those kinds of things, but. Well, I was talking to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please. I was talking to, to the guy who runs the Guitar Sanctuary, the store in McKinney, right? And today, a beautiful uh, place, by the way. One of my favorite yeah. venues in North America. 
right? Oh, what a great story. Yes. And Brian Meters is his name. And he was talking about uh, Andy and uh, Timmons uh, doing a bunch of like stage it and true fire stuff and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know, during this time. And he said before this, Andy would have eschewed that sort of thing because he was too busy traveling and touring and seeing people. And it was always one of those things that, yeah, I should get to do that. I should try to do that. And he never did because he just was always busy doing the other stuff. And now he's, I don't want to say it's the luxury of the time. Maybe it's the concentration of the time, but he's had the ability to actually now do that and find out, Hey, this is kind of cool. This is, this is fun. This is another legitimate outlet to do the same kind of thing. So well, in, there are some benefits, I think. The, well, the positive benefits for sure down the road. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I love Andy. Andy and I have... Uh, I think he we can all agree on that. He, yeah. he basically hasn't toured America as a solo artist without me. Um, and we're, we were going to do more this year. So that's unfortunate. But we'll see how, you know, hopefully next year we can get back. I have his rig at my studio here in California. Oh, wow. <laughs> because the well, idea to have him on the show we'd like to get him on the shows yeah he, he's, he's a beautiful human being and obviously i'm a, a pretty good guitar player right all right <laughs> he's all right <laughs> right i mean if he if we would just work on his tone and his phrasing and maybe he'd get somewhere you know? weak, weak right. tone. <laughs> it just and seems like he tries so hard i know <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but anyway, uh, so the, the positive thing for guys like Andy and I out of all of this is forcing us to learn this stuff is that to taking it forward, uh, I can do more, you know, social media content down, down the road in the future. Maybe I can make higher quality videos of some new songs, or maybe I can, maybe I'll be more apt, even when we're out back out to normal life and touring again, uh, knock on wood. Well, I can still do um, higher, yeah, exactly. Uh, I can still do a higher quality, um, you know, sh social media sharing of a new song idea and stuff because I have all the technology to be able to get the audio in properly and do it now. Whereas before right. we were kind of anti that because it was like, I don't want people videotaping my shows. I want people to show up and see it. I don't want crappy sound out there. And See, I, I knew you were like this when I asked you to play on this and you said, well, I can't because Zoom's not stereo. <laughs> I'm like, now see, nice. this is a guy after my own heart who goes, oh, well, yeah, I would love to, but it's not going to sound good enough. Right. I'll and, show, you, and when I'll you, show listen, you some pretty guitars. I have pretty guitars right here. Oh, you know, but, there we go. But, uh, nice. you know, um, yeah, if I worked for a week just to be able to do the thing I did last night and have a really good stereo mix that was 16-bit, so... <laughs> Well, when I listen to your albums, you know, the production quality, which is something that I'm very concerned about in, in what I do, it sounds spectacular. It, and I meant to actually talk about it, if we can kind of drag the conversation over to your, your music specifically. Mm -hmm. When I listen to your songs, especially when I can put on headphones and listen to them, you, you clearly spend a lot of time um, promoting the stereo aspect of it, making sure that, that the stereo-esque-ness of it comes out throughout the entire song. It never doesn't fail to tickle aside left and right. You know what I mean? It, it isn't just everything stereo all at once and it's just a stereo field. It's like, no, there's things going on. The pull here, pull there. And I, that's the kind of thing I really enjoy. And I was like, from, from the very first time I started listening to your tunes, I'm like, see, this guy gets the stereo field. He's creating an, an atmosphere and an experience, not just musical notes in a row. And that's something I really appreciate because like you, I'm a huge Rush fan. Well, so, 
which you know, that comes out very clearly in your music. It's definitely, I read a review one time where it said you were a cross between uh, Rush, Jeff Beck, and Steve Morse. I'm like, well, that's that's dead on. That's That really is, you know, and, and what a great compliment. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty much the deal, yeah. Um, well, yeah. first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that because uh, being independent, you are in control of this stuff and we're always learning and we're trying really, really hard to do exactly what you just said. And we're getting better at it every time. Uh, um, you know, we, we put out our first record in 1998 and that was basically a live in the studio record. And we had Tascam eight track tape. Uh, it, they were basically VHS tapes and we had, you know, I think three of those machines and, uh, so it was, I think, 24 track. They had to sync up. It was really hard to punch because, you know, if you had to fix a mistake, right. they'd never sync up in time. And, you know, so it wasn't like today where in Pro Tools, you can like, well, let me fix this one note, dun, dun, bang, you know, and you're done. <laughs> you know? yeah. So anyway, um, I couldn't do as much of that back then as I can. And the more as I've grown and technology has grown and uh, our production team has grown. Jennifer Young and I have co-produced every record and uh, we've co-engineered with Kip Stork who has been our engineer and um, he's been the engineer on all the Aristocrats tours that we've done uh, North America and he's um, so and it's a it's a definitely a mix of uh, of duties We're, we we make each other better and it's kind of the three of us between all our ears trying to get the best we can get with the gear that we have right. and we don't have the best gear in the world either you know we've always lived on a budget i don't have a gigantic amazing uh system uh, i have we did build a 3000 square foot commercial studio and it's got a great pro tools rig in it and uh you know but that that kind of stuff becomes outdated and then you have to come forward again and you know that stuff's always but um you know i the the albums the most recent albums you're talking about uh 90 percent of those were recorded in the room i'm sitting with now on a uh on an m box with an old pro tool system you know and so it doesn't take fancy gear to make a great record anymore Right. Um, it's a two-channel M-Box. I record all my guitars with that and Jen's basses. And then um, all the keyboards and stuff, you know. Um, just a quick shot. I'm a kind of a keyboard guy. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so I've got a, uh, nice you know, a Real Rhodes. That's a 73 Rhodes Mark Four, I think, or Mark One. I, I can't remember, um, which I've had since I was 10 years old. And... Uh, you know, it's funny. One of the things that uh, Steve Lukather says is that, like, a guy, um, we did. He played on one of my records years ago, and a guy asked him online or something. He goes, "What plugins were you using for the Rhodes sound?" He goes, "It's called a Rhodes piano. You plug it in and you play it." <laughs> so it's a real plug. It's a plug. You plug it in, yeah. But um, but yeah, thank you very much for noticing because um, we try really, really hard on that stuff and we never get, you know, you're always trying to get better. Uh, but we get to where at least we feel we've done as much as we can do with where we're at and with the technology we have at the time. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that, um, you know, you're getting some of that stuff. And I, and I grew up on Steve Morris, who 
you know, he was a guy that record, you know, 30 guitars, but it still sounded like a trio. Right. And that's the kind of world I'm from too. So you'll hear melodies with harmonies and things where, you know, you've got your main guitar and then maybe there's an acoustic and then maybe there's a nylon string acoustic and maybe there's a piano and maybe there's a fiddle and all and that stuff. You harmonies a lot left and right and that's nice. Yeah. It, all that stuff gets mixed in there to try and make it sound fat. And the, the real trick is finding the space for it. But sometimes it's about all that stuff combined being, you know, perceived as one thing, right. but it's a whole bunch of stuff to make it sound really, really nice and have a nice stereo spread. And I grew up on albums like you guys did, you know. I, I, when I buy an album, when I used to buy my last Rush album, I put on good headphones and I lay, lay there and I listen to it and I right. listen to it maybe again, but I give it the attention it deserves. Sure. Well, and I don't want to harp on the Rush thing, but I got to say, when I, when I was listening to, um, it was that first, uh, first I think it was the first cut off of Annika, and it it, it starts out with the with the chorus guitar. And yes, and absolutely. Like, that is the closest I've heard anybody do, including my own paltry efforts, of sounding like an old Rush record. You know, it, and, and it, I don't know if that's what you were going for, but if you weren't, you still did, because my God, I was like, oh, I've missed the hearing that sound. That's, that's. I've been trying to get that for so long and he's it's not that you just you you sort of got it i mean you captured that that thing they did and and as you'd like let one chord hang on and you'd bring in another and the combination that they would make in that in-between stage was something that they used to do that they kind of didn't do on the last three or four albums but right. i missed it so much and it's nice to hear somebody that clearly appreciated that and can pay homage to it and yet still play something brand new with it well thank you man i, I mean i really think that and and i think that the way Rush took kind of the yes and that, that kind of a, a fancy prog rock stuff and brought rock into it, you know, actually made it much more rock guitar and that kind of stuff. You've taken the, the Rush ethos and made it more jazzy. And well, I think that was that's 100%. Really cool. the, the track you're talking about is the title track, Annika, although there's a lot of stuff on that album that isn't, there's a lot of uh influences mixed together that we're wearing on our sleeve but there's enough mixed together where maybe it turns into something different and it doesn't right? sound like a rush album if anybody doesn't, hasn't heard this yet it doesn't sound like it's it's rush it, it just sounds like somebody who likes the sound of rush records and wants to right. do something and that's cool. so, so here's the idea specifically behind that and it was thoughtful it was to make that that record specifically um when so if you listen to the tune you're talking about which is the opening track um, yes, it opens, it, it opens pure power windows. That's the idea, right? Oh, okay, sure, yeah. And, and then the chorus in that is, uh, a, is Dixie Dregs, and I've I actually got a fiddle on there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's absolutely mixing, like, my two favorite bands into a song saying, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write, you know, if those two bands wrote something new, maybe it would sound like this. And that's, and, the, and every song on that record, the, the, uh, the idea of that record, um, Annika is a, a word that means impermanence. And the idea of that record was to kind of take things that we loved and specifically, you know, do what you are saying we accomplished. And you're the first person that's clearly told me that in that exact kind of way. So I appreciate it. Um, but that's what we were trying to do. We were we were basically saying, let's pay homage to all of the influences that we have. And there's other songs on there. There's a song called Outside the Inn, which is absolutely late 80s Genesis. It's like the funky Genesis when uh, 
Tony Banks would like do that cross-handed like staccato keyboard stuff, uh, like kind of the back and forth, that kind of stuff. And, and so there's like, but it also gave Jen a chance to do this full funk slap bass thing, which is not on any Genesis record ever, you know? Um, so it sounds, it's, it's, it's a kind of a new thing based on an old thing. It feels like it, it isn't it. Yeah, it, right. Well, I feel like as a as a songwriter, you will probably agree. I feel like when I listen to something that is really inspiring, it's not necessarily like, oh, I want to do that. It's, man, that's so cool. I wonder if I can come up with something like that. Exactly. Or exactly. put my own spin on it or, or, or just have it be, well, pure influence as opposed to copying. Right. Yeah. Like going back to the first tune, um, you know, the idea, those opening chords that you hear that you think immediately sound like Rush, it was just, and everybody was kind of, uh, a lot of the bands in our genre that that do covers, there, there's a few friends of ours that do a lot of, you know, they, YYZ is always a big one. Everybody does that and everybody, and we never want to cover that stuff because. Because you don't have to sing like Getty if you do YYZ. Right, exactly. <laughs> but for us, it's a little sacrilege to cover Rush songs. It's just a personal right. thing. Like, it's right. like, I, I don't want to get into the mechanics of it so much that I lose the listenability. I want to be able to turn yeah. it on in the morning and still go, yeah, you know? So I've never really been interested in doing that. But, but the idea of that one song was, to, to your point of, uh, of finding an influence, we said, let's make it as glassy sounding as we can, which was the whole, let's be influenced by like the, uh, the rush that people kind of like debate on whether it's good or not. You know, <laughs> the, the, full, the full hardcore rush fans are always bitching about the synth era, right? Right. And so we were like, um, okay, so probably the height of that was moving or uh, of power windows. So right. let's, let's look at power windows and try and, and sound as glassy and kind of smooth. Like you were saying where things like overlay, let's take that idea and try and make it sound like us or contemporary. And so it's like, you're saying we were in, inspired by the idea and it was some stuff that we hadn't necessarily done production wise, you know, and I and what? that that album is really thick. It's it's that my many of my albums are thick, but that one's there's a lot of stuff going on. So girthy. It's got girth. Right. It's it's more about the girth. It's right. More about the, it doesn't it doesn't sound like you're you're copying Rush so much as loving Rush and right. going here's what I dug about them. Just like somebody might love the and and, the and Jeff Beck and Steve Morris, right? Right. right. <laughs> and, and that's all in there. It really is. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I keep, I have a little note to myself to remind me to tell you this just because I think it's funny. Andy West, you know, Andy West is of course. Very, amazing. very well. My mom used to be his boss when he went into the computer industry. Wow. Yeah. And she would come home and, and talk about this guy, Andy, some program. And I'm like, who is this guy you're talking about? Oh, Andy West. Wait a minute. Does he look like this? Yeah, that's him. Oh my God, mom. He's <laughs> the best bass player in the whole wide world. You can't talk about him like that. Well, he's so, just a programmer to me. Oh, my God. So here's a great Andy West story, which leads into the final Dixie Dregs tour. Uh, oh, yeah. I do want to hear about that. Yeah. Sat so, in, right? I sat in on, uh, I think, the third or fourth to the last show of the tour. Um, I like on stage with the original Dixie Dregs in the band, <laughs> not, not opening for the band, not sharing right. the bill with the band. So, I mean, talk about needing a diaper. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
but so here's the story. Um, Andy, uh, he lives in near Phoenix, Arizona, somewhere thereabouts. Um, he, he started showing up to see us. We did a clinic at a Sam Ash, I think it was. This is, there's so many great st- things about Andy. Um, and and I've, I've known Steve Morris for years and I'm really good friends with Dave LaRue. Um, so mm-hmm. like that, the whole circle, you know, I mean, Dave played on one of my records. Um, so they, they've really taken me under their wing in a way and really been sweet to me. And, uh, you know, there's bands, I mean, I think they recognize kind of what you were saying, where I'm trying to take the ball and run with it, but I'm not trying to copy it. Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, 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 and they've, they've really been so good to me in that way. I mean, and that's one of those things. I mean, you get emotional about it because that was, that's the closest thing. You know, it's like the Dixie Dregs and Rush are really like the, as far as bands go, they're the, for for us, that's the, that's the stuff right there, right? And and Jeff Beck is a guitar player. He's the reason I started playing. But the two bands, Dixie Dregs and Rush, and so you're never gonna you know you're never gonna jam with Rush. I mean that's just wasn't ever gonna happen. It wasn't in the cards. I did get to meet Rush at one point and get backstage and all that kind of stuff. And that Rush was Rush Max Webster. In which case, apparently you get to right exactly, <laughs> right? So jealous. But, so, so Andy uh, had the first quick, I'll make it quicker than it is, but uh, he came to a clinic in Phoenix and there was a guy there that was kind of cracked out of his head. And this guy was screwing with me the whole clinic. He was sitting in the front and he was talking inappropriately and at inappropriate times. And I kept trying to like focus past him and ignore him and engage the people that weren't him. Right. And I kind of looking at the store guys, like, are you guys going to help me here? Is somebody going to do something? Cause I don't want to have to be the bad guy. I'm, yeah. you know, Andy Timmons and I have a saying we're nice until we're not, but, right. but I really don't want to be that guy, especially when you're the focus and you know, you don't want to kill the mood in the room, but people are getting distracted by this guy. And Andy West is sitting in the back of this clinic and I'm, I'm like, already kind of peeing myself because Andy showed up to this clinic and he's sitting, Andy West is sitting in the back of one of my clinics. It's like, holy crap. Right. And he's so into it. He's into it. Like I'm playing a song and he's closing his eyes and he's all in. And I'm just like, and he would tell, he would tell you that he, he, he says that's how he really listens to music that he likes. He, he really, he'll close his eyes and really focus on it. So eventually about, you know, 40 minutes into this thing, Andy gets up and goes and gets one of the store guys and says, look, you got to do something about this guy. And they're like, well, we don't usually kick people out of the store. And he's like, you got to do something about this guy. He's disruptive, blah, blah, blah. And so out of 40, 50 people, whatever it was, the one guy that got up to save my ass was Andy West, right? And so, so that was number one. And then uh, we went back through there a couple times and played some gigs. Some of them were great. Some of them were so-so. And uh, Andy showed up several times to, to hang and see us. And, and so I get a, uh, like two years ago, I think it was. Well, it was the, the NAMM show before the, or before the uh, Dixie Dregs reunion tour. Um, I get an email and we're doing the first X Jam. And uh, at the at the NAM show, and so it's me and Keneally and Andy Timmons and Tony McAlpine, mm-hmm. and that's that's the bill. Mm-hmm. 
And so Andy emails me and he, he says, and I'm keeping the email until the day I die. He says, the dream would be if I could come and jam with you guys and maybe do a dregs thing or something like that. And I'm like, you kidding me? You know, like Andy West wants to play a dregs song with us. Yeah. I'm like losing my mind. Right. And immediately, and, and, and much like when you're a kid in school too, not necessarily a good feeling when you have to get up and read in front of the class, all of a sudden the hard adrenaline hits you where you get hot right. and nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, all of a sudden I feel a little sick. It's a good sick, but I feel a little sick. Right. Right. So, so we work up uh, cruise control. Oh, wow. Coincidentally, and I've, you know, I've never learned any of this stuff. I play my music. So it, it took right. a lot, you know, a lot. Um, coincidentally, Dave LaRue band is touring with Travis Larson band on the West Coast before the NAMM show for a week and they're opening for us. And so I tell Dave LaRue, I go, dude, is there any way we could encore with cruise control and we'll make it like a multi-band jam that, that way he can get away with it because it, it's a little weird if he sees like, you know, you don't want Steve Morris seeing him play with me with a trio or something like that. So, um, so we put it together where it's basically the jam encore at the end of the night, you know, and we've got guys from the band. We've got Carl Rowe on, on, guitar, on second guitar and stuff. So I, I play cruise control with Dave LaRue for a week before I go into the NAMM show so that I can get my yeah. stuff together and not be losing my mind when I get to NAMM and play with Andy West. Right. So it was awesome. And, and Dave LaRue's bad enough, right? I mean, it's like, that's already one of my favorite bass players in the entire world from my favorite <laughs> bands in the entire world. Um, but, but I know Dave and I'm more comfortable with him at the time. And so I felt a little better about it, but it was still scary, you know? And so we do that. And, uh, and then I get to the damn show and we do the show. We go through the whole thing. Um, Mike Keneally is basically going to be um, like, we, we've split up all the parts and we've, we don't have a, a keyboard player, a fiddle player. We're all three on guitar. So we're Travis Larson man's going to play their set. I'm Jen's going to relinquish her bass rig to Andy West. He's going to come up for the encore. And then I'm going to bring up Mike and Andy as the other foils. Right. And so, uh, so Keneally is, um, I think he, he was kind of like T, T. Labbitt's and uh, Andy was kind of like, and uh, Andy uh, Timmons was kind of like uh, playing the, the fiddle player parts. And we broke it up like that in the jam. So when you do the circle stuff where you play, you start whittling the notes down where it's like, you know, that crazy part. Um, so that was, we got through that. Everybody's holding their breath. We never rehearsed it. We, we kind of talked about it at sound check without amps. Right. You know? And, uh, and we completely got through it. It's on YouTube. And, uh, and, and at the end, after the night, you know, we're back in the dressing room and Andy West walks up to me. And I, at this point, it's just been Andy West wanted to come and, you know, do this jam. And so he comes up and he goes, uh, let me show you something. And he pulls out his iPhone and he shows me a picture of the original Dixie Dregs at Steve's barn. Mm -hmm. And before anybody knew anything, right? And so I'm like jaw dropped. I'm like, that's everybody. That's, oh my God. And he was like, yeah, we're, we're going to do a, a, a tour. I think we're talking about it. And I kind of wanted to get my feet wet. And I was just oh, like, wow. holy, that's cool. I'm like, wow, 
what a big, what a cool thing, right? Yeah. So, so then the dregs go out and it's the, you know, I, I never thought, first of all, I thought the dregs had gone the way of Rush. You'd never see another dregs show because T had passed away and things are just kind of separated and Steve's having issues with his hands and you're like, you're never going to see it again. It's, it, the, you know, and, and so when they came back with the original, you know, and it was like the original five, you're like, oh, wow, that's brilliant. I hadn't even, th- I didn't even think some of those guys were playing and they weren't. Yeah. Like Alan Sloan wasn't playing. For, he had to play for a year to Woodshed to get back for that show, you know, oh, or wow. for that tour. So he hadn't been playing. Um, uh, that Steve Davidowski, the keyboard player, hadn't, he, he'd been playing, but he hadn't been playing, you know, Dixie Dregs material. Right. So it, those guys worked their butts off for like a year and woodshedded and woodshedded and then came out and did that tour. And so, um, and, I, and I was also involved with some of the other stuff behind the scenes with some of those guys didn't have any gear, you know, cause they hadn't been playing. So I helped with some of the gear and, uh, and they would kind of joke with me throughout the tour. Um, Jennifer flew out to New York and saw like three shows. And, uh, and she's like, they, they're talking about you should sit in on one of these things, or maybe we should, or we should figure something out. And, and it just kind of went on and on and on. And then somebody would maybe joke about it again. And I'm like, they're not going to do that. They don't do that. That's not something they do. Right. And so record store day of what was it? Was it 2018 maybe? Uh, I, I can't remember, but I think that's, that was it. Um, so record store day is in April. It's like right around now. Uh, it could have even been, uh, you know, today. Right. Um, they, Jennifer and I went and did a noon performance at a local record shop for record store day. So I, I had my guitar in the, in the trunk of the car, just happened to. Then we drove down to LA to see the dregs. And, uh, so I walk in and we, you know, we're friends with a lot of these guys. So we walk, we, we got in early and we go in and, and Steve sees me and he's up at, on stage and he goes, did you bring your guitar? And I'm like, maybe like, <laughs> like I, I wasn't going ready for anything, you know? And I, and at this point I hadn't played cruise control in a year, so that wasn't going to happen, you know? And he goes, well, we should do something. And I'm like, okay as as my knees start to buckle right and uh and then uh he, he goes yeah yeah go, go get your guitar and my guitar was actually back at a hotel we i took it out put it in the room and uh, um you know so so he goes we'll, we'll just play mine and then uh, you can go get yours so i so i sent jennifer and our, our friend uh, of ours mark off to go get my guitar i get up there and i'm playing steve's other guitar through half of steve's rig and and so that, you know, we kind of like, he goes, well, let's just play like, uh, let's go play play old cream tune or something, you know? So we, we played uh, the fast version of Crossroads. It was just the right speed where we could do all those, like do a little, 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 and we could cut heads a little bit. And then, uh, so I've got a video of that up on my YouTube, which is just a bunch of fan shot video um, that was, you know, pulled into a, a one video, but, um, but, I get up there and um, also uh, the, the, the lead singer for Little Feet sang with us. So that was another, wow, holy crap moment. And, uh, and he's since just passed away, uh, Paul Barrere. Um, so, uh, so I got to play with, you know, that legend as well as these other legends. And uh, I went there just expecting to see a show and have dinner. Right. And all of a sudden, 
you know, I was like thrown in the hot seat and my adrenaline is just cooking. And, right. uh, and the other thing is backstage, you know, everybody's like, you, you know, they, they don't, they're not, I mean, in a joking friendly way, but they're not playing nice with you, you know, right. <laughs> like they're kind of like, you know, don't, don't tank up there, you know. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm just joking. But right, seriously, right. no, but seriously, yeah, <laughs> no, no, but really, it hasn't yeah. gone well for some other people. It should, you know, make sure you do a good job. <laughs> so, but then I, so I went up and uh, and it, we killed, and it's amazing, and it's funny because I sound so. If you close your eyes, because we're playing through Steve's rig, both with Music Man guitars, you can barely decipher who's who. And That's he had this thing where he would let off of a run, and he doesn't worry about the bar line. He's not, it's not like I'll take a bar and you take a bar. It's like, he just kind of plays and then goes, go and looks at you. So it's all eye contact. And you're just like, you're like so sharp and hanging right. on. It's like, okay, now, you know? Yeah. And so we were doing this crazy trading and it, um, you can barely decipher who's who because I have so much Steve Morris influence. And when I, right. I got into that situation, I kind of stuck with that because I, you know, I was kind of trading with him. We were, it was call and response. So we were doing so much alternate picking. I didn't get into any of my old 80s tapping and all that stuff that I would normally do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, but it was amazing. And there was a couple of runs he threw at me just to remind me who he was, you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was just a few like, yeah, just, just so you know. Yeah. You know, but, but that was an amazing moment. I mean, it, it's, uh, that was one of those moments that that's what it's all about. For, yeah. on, from the artist side, you know, aside from obviously all the connecting with everybody um, on, on that geeky 16, 15, 16 year old kid level that you got to remember or right. else you lose your fire. You go, holy crap, I'm on stage with the original Dixie Dregs trading licks with Steve Morris for their encore. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't get much better than that. Really. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, the closest and, I've ever come to that was when I took a, my first guitar lesson with Andy Timmons. Yeah. And I took a telly because I knew he, he, he secretly liked tellies. And so I, I brought a telly that I had built. And he brought his famous guitar, you know, his, yeah. his one Ibanez with the broken pickguard. And uh, I said, do you want to check out my telly? He goes, yeah, here, you play my guitar. And this is the first time I've ever met the guy. I'm like holding this guitar that I've seen on television and stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. And he goes, okay, now I'll just play chords. You go ahead and solo. Right. Hey, no pressure. Okay, sure. Oh, head exploding. Oh, my God. So right, he didn't right. get the best first impression of my abilities, I'm thinking. Mostly just sweat pouring out of my body. <laughs> right, right. Well, and guitar it, back. Sorry. Oh. And that's why I, I was worried going into the dregs thing that it was going to be like that because I was like, how am I going to get through this without tanking? But just, I've, you know, I've been a professional for so long that you, that takes over. And then it's just two yeah. guys communicating. And, and he's one of the best communicators. I'll tell you it my three favorite communicators that I've ever played with, Steve, because he, he doesn't get into a pissing match, he communicates and you have a conversation. Andy is probably one of the most amazing musical conversations I've ever had. Um, and if you go online and you look up, it's something like best version of Little Wing ever or something like that, somebody posted, it's me and Andy in Washington DC. And we did this interweaving thing where we, we, we traded licks for like 15 or 20 minutes or whatever it was on this version of Little Wing, where we were doing stuff, we never talked about it, we never rehearsed it, it wasn't planned, mm -hmm. and it was the most ridiculous thing. I mean, 
I, I look at it and I go, this might be my favorite version. That's, that's not right to say, right? It's not yeah. right say. <laughs> like, man, I did a but, good job on this. Right, right. But it's just ridiculous, the stuff that was going on. And, and he was doing this stuff. We did a thing where he's just playing and we just stopped the band behind him. And he kept playing and we kept in our heads where we were and then came back in on the one after the whole progression mm. came around. And then, and then he and I did this trading stuff where we're just interweaving the most weird, crazy, awesome stuff. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And I played piano on it because there was a piano on stage. And so after he had done the first solo and just tore it up forever, I was like, I'll, I'll play piano. <laughs> and I, I was like, what can I do? People have been listening to guitar for like two, two and a half hours, you know? Yeah. So anyway, it, that was a magical, magical moment. And then I, my other favorite guy that has a conversation with you when you jam is uh, Larry Mitchell, who he's like my brother from another mother. Um, when he, whenever he and I get together, and that's why we tour a lot, it's always a good conversation. Always yeah. great tone, great phrasing, and uh, we always have a lot of fun. We usually get wireless, and at the end of the night, we'll go out into the audience and start standing on tables and stuff and doing that, you know. Right. <laughs> so, um, but those, you know, those guys, you know, I mean, I, I have, I, I, I've been privileged to play with all kinds of amazing people. Mike Keneally scares the crap out of me because he comes at you like he's possessed. Right. And if you're looking him in the eye when he comes at you on stage, he's not even there. <laughs> well, that ties into something I was going to say. It's, it's you, you know, you, you talked about, you know, it was your personal favorite version, even though you played on it. And I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily egocentric because in, in so many ways, and I'm sure you feel the same way, music feels like when you let it, it flows from another place through you. And it's yeah. not coming out of you so much as you're just this conduit, letting it happen. And that's kind of sometimes what you're most proud of is that you literally let it just come through. And then you right. can kind of enjoy it later and go, oh, wow, I really was awesome. Right. Well, and here's the thing is, you know, there's, you get to a point where you can communicate and then you play with a guy like, say, Andy in that, that instance where he's throwing stuff at you that hasn't been thrown at you before. Mm -hmm. And so you're reacting to things that you've never reacted to before. So you play things you've never played before. Well, and that's instant. where the magic comes from. And that's why you look back at it and go, wow, how did I do that? And it's, it's instant creativity. Right. And you had the vocabulary, but you didn't, you know, it was like you're mm -hmm. responding to a different conversation. And that's why it became so magical. It was like, what, what's happening? What just happened? You know, that's that, that I've played this song a hundred times and it's never sounded like that, you know? <laughs> Which I mean, and that kind of goes into, I had a kind of a list of, of talking points that I wanted to, to go over. I mean, we've, we've actually kind of organically hit, Pretty much all of them. And the one thing that you said earlier um, brought up an additional one was the when you were talking about YYZ and not wanting to cover Rush and, and things like that. As a songwriter and as a, as a creative artist, as opposed to just a guitar player, do you find yourself intentionally not learning the intricacies of the people that inspire you from a, an emotional standpoint? Because uh, I, I intentionally want to keep that magic for myself. I, I don't learn the songs of the bands that I really, really love because I don't want the, I don't want the technical to come through so much that I become a carbon copy. I want the feeling to then translate through me. But, but someone that is far more technical than I would probably ever be, I was really curious to know your approach to that and uh, at what point you go, okay, I'm not going to learn any more of 
this particular artist or, or, you know, my chops are built from this, but I'm not emulating, you know, how do you approach right. that and, and everything? Well, it's, it's like it's, a real interview question and everything, man. Right. Wow. No, but well, that's it. It's, it's exactly right. What you said is I, I purposefully don't learn those things that I don't want to lose the magic of. And right. I have, I've never really learned like a Steve Morris song. I mean, that's why when you, you, when you learn, I sound a lot like him sometimes, like some mm. of my alternate picking runs and things like that. But if I, if I have to actually learn it, like when I had to learn, um, you know, the, the uh, cruise control, mm. it was really difficult because it's different than what I have ingrained in me pattern wise and things, you know, some of those descending runs were like, Oh man, I, I don't know if I, I'm, am I going to be able to do this? Yeah. But, but the reason, you know, being like you said, I don't want to lose the magic of a lot of those things. You know, I've, I've, I've learned uh, there's one song I learned of Steve Morris's and on acoustic guitar, it was Highland wedding. Cause it was such a beautiful tune. And I just wanted to, I used it as a tool to kind of learn how to play somewhat polyphonic classical type stuff where you could play a bass line and a melody over it and put your fingers in positions that they they don't normally go and i'm not good at that at all but i i you know generally speaking the other idea is that that stuff's so hard to learn and rush songs even were so hard to learn with the you know i know a few riffs just from sound checks and stuff but i don't really know that stuff and if you're going to work so hard to learn that stuff, then maybe try writing your own stuff. And that's kind of right. the way I always looked at it. The other thing is, and this is a, an interesting take on what, what we're talking about is, um, for instance, Jeff Beck with all his fusion records, you know, the, the, the famous ones back in the day where lead boots and all that stuff, he was trying to be Mahavishnu and he's pretty clear about that, but he goes, I wasn't good enough to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and obviously we all know what Jeff Beck's magic is. So that's no, no slight on Jeff Beck in any way. He is, in my mind, one of the all-time greatest guitar players ever in the history of guitar. Sure. But, it, but it's because of his voice on the guitar. That's mm. really the magic, right? right. And that's, that's what it's all about. So, so there is something to be said for listening to something that you can't do trying to emulate it, but not being at that level and coming up with something that in my case might be a little more accessible even, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've got a, a song off my very first record called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, oh, yeah. which it's, a, it's kind of a super froggy thing. Yeah. yeah, right. And, and so the thing with that song is, and, and I, Mike and I talk about this a lot, Keneally and I, um, I saw Mike Keneally playing um there, I, there's a song called bob dylan's nose i think it is i think that's the one where most of the idea for that came from where he comes out of the gates with this totally angular crazy wild thing and then it sucks up into like some grooves and stuff right and and so i i saw that and i saw him uh, this is like maybe the mid 90s he was opening for steve Vai on the fire garden tour and uh, that was the first time I ever saw Mike live. And, um, and I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And I, I wasn't as hip to the whole, I obviously knew who Zappa was and I know a lot of the Zappa music that everybody knows, but right. I wasn't so dug in that I knew Mike was like Zappa's guitar player and all that at that time. Mm -hmm. He was just this quirky guy who was in 
Vi's band and opening for Vi. And so I saw him and I was just like, this guy is freaking amazing. He's ridiculous, you know, and, and hilarious and like rocking and ferocious and all that stuff. And so, so the song ADD was me trying to do something kind of Mike Keneally-ish and it coming out honestly really kind of more commercial. I mean, there's the whole angular intro and outro to that song. There's some crazy breakdowns, but then it kind of goes into this groove and you can kind of do this for 90% of the song. That is exactly that. That is me being inspired by a guy that could run, you know, run laps around me and, and going, I want to do something kind of like that. And then it comes out, you know, so Mike said a really sweet thing to me um, pretty recently where he said, you know, that song is, um, he goes, it's, you've taken this thing that's kind of a wild and crazy ride and you've made it completely accessible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was like, that's because I couldn't play like you. <laughs> that's, that's the reality. You know, I, if yeah. I could, if I could have done nine minutes of the craziest stuff I'd ever, and keep in mind that was 20, 23 years ago so i was much younger and i was way more into the i want to do something crazy and i want to show my chops than it was i want to play beautiful music and interesting arrangements right you know so 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 the song to me now i we we still play it because if it's off it's off our first record and it's very popular amongst fans and it's fun to play because it's not so challenging anymore and there's a drum solo in the live version Mm -hmm. but it's not our most mature song. You know, it's kind of like when Rush goes back and plays some of their really early stuff and it's all angular and they do it for the encore and you're all excited to see them just play trio stuff with no samples and no keyboards and everything. That's kind of our version of that, you know, but there's, but there's the, a pureness in that though. Yeah, that, exactly. That if it's about the listener, they don't care that it's your least mature. Right. You know, it's, especially if it was like the first time they ever heard you, it, right. Yeah, that thought never even enters their mind of, well, they must hate playing this live or they must be tired of playing this because it's from the first record. Like, right. They're just, they're hearing it almost for the first time every time. Sure. And, but the, but the, uh, the magic of that song coming together and many others is me trying to do something that was too hard for me. Yeah. You know, and it came out still pretty kind of quirky and cool, but it's not, it's not a Mike Keneally song, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so to just to your point of how do you approach things? Um, yeah, I don't really ever try and learn their material, but I might try and emulate it. And then you come out with something different because you're not them. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's like any art form, you know, if you're trying to write a movie score or, or if you're trying to write a movie script and you're, yeah, I want to write something like, Whatever it is, you know, I, I want to do, say, kind of avant-garde, you know, I want to do kind of a Quentin Tarantino-esque thing or whatever it is, but it's not going to be like that. Right. Totally, it might be influenced by that, but you're, you're not going to be him because he's a master at being him. Sure. You know? But so, even Tarantino is heavily influenced by all those 60s and 70s movies that he's right. trying to be. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's always, oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's one of the reasons he's so popular, right? Because we all love that stuff. And then he takes all our favorite parts. And that's all you can hope for as an artist is you get good influences and you do that, you know? So go go ahead. It's just, it's cool to to think about um, the lineage of influence. 
and going, okay, well, if Travis Larson sounds like this, it's because, you know, Steve Moore sounded like this, but what was Steve listening to that you don't even know that you're directly influenced by this one, you know, right. blues record right. that he heard when he was 12. Yeah. Well, Cliff Gallup has got to be in your playing somewhere because Jeff Beck loves Cliff Gallup. So, you know, you you have that in, even though you don't maybe listen to Cliff Gallup. Right. I'll tell you something about Steve, too, because I, you know, there's a period of my career where I was, a lot of my stuff is very, very Steve like, like the the Steve Morris band. It sounds Mm -hmm. a lot like that. Some of that stuff, like uh, a lot of the Burn Season record is very Steve Morris esque. And and even to this day, I'll still write a tune that's going to, I'm going to do like a Steve Morris shred tune, you know, just because we need a rocker. But um, the, the thing about that stuff is that. I, I felt really kind of insecure about that for a long time until I heard Mahavishnu mm-hmm. and I realized what the Dixie Dregs were. Right. You know, and I, I didn't really get that for a long time because they were, to me, the Dregs were the thing, you know? And so exactly to your point, I started going, oh, I see, I see where Steve got that. I see yeah. where he got this. And then I started hearing a few other guys I know he listens to, um, you know, he's, he took kind of the country picking thing and at least you know the way i see it and kind of applied it to a lot of that um a lot of the stuff that sounds like the shreddy stuff is really just really fast country picking like he's a bluegrass bluegrass player playing through a cranked tube amp with distortion Mm -hmm. right right and and so those crazy uh you know all those really fast jumble of notes that he'll and, and that's one of the things I've completely ripped from over the years is I, I will play, a, I always love playing a really fast jumble of notes before a sweet melody line that holds. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the other thing that, I don't know if this is true or not. That but, was my thing, crap. <laughs> but one of, one of the ways, I, I used to think that Steve got that actually from, uh, from piano players, but I think he's actually got some country pickers that he took it from, but, but you listen. Yeah, but if you listen to T back in the day, you know, he would, um, sorry, I'm going to make sure my screen doesn't go to sleep. (laughs) Um, T would, you know, he'd play a piano run where those guys like on on a piano. And that's almost started sounding to me like what Steve would do. And then they would double each other so much. So I started thinking, well, is Steve copying the piano player? Is the piano player copying Steve? Because it seemed more natural to play piano that way than guitar to to my ear Mm -hmm. as a kid. Because as a kid, you're learning hammer-ons and you're playing Jimmy Page licks and, you know, all this chromatic stuff where you're playing like a a million notes really fast, all alternate picked and then landing on the right one. That's the stuff where... I started looking at that going, well, that sounds like almost like a piano player would do that, you know? So um, anyway, it's, it's all very interesting of how this stuff gets influenced and trickled down, you know, generation to generation. And, well, but it and must be could, such, go ahead, I'm sorry. But even if you go back to, like if the three of us, we, we all are Rush fans. And, you know, let's say that that wasn't a direct influence, even though it is. But like we go back to that, we're probably going to have different favorite albums, or even if we had the same favorite album, it might be a different favorite song that we're getting the same influence, but just our own perspective in life and in music, we're going to pull something different that even though, yeah, you may have the same um, influence, it, it's, it's going to be 
from a different corner, from a different perspective. So somebody can just go, to be yeah. clear, I think I'm going bald is the, is the best rush song. I'm just saying it right now. <laughs> well, and to your, hello, to your, hello. To your point, not the going bald point, but the previous <laughs> Um, when you're pulling, different people are pulling different things out of those influences. A lot of times that has to do with what their particular strength is and what they're able right. to pull, right? So maybe with, with the Steve Morris thing for me, you know, first of all, I started because of Jeff Beck. So I love, I, I, I write heavily melodic material. Sure. It's like all about the melody. And then... I started being able to add technical aspects to that because of Steve's influence and his compositional and melodic skills. But it started with the Jeff Beck being able to talk with the guitar. Right. So when I take the Steve Morris thing and all that like kind of alternate picking stuff and, and add that, you know, you're, you're dealing, then, then you start to have an amalgamation and it starts to become maybe something that, you know, that sounds a little bit more, like me and then you add a little bit of you know i actually started as a piano player we haven't even really covered that but no uh, i i started playing uh piano when i was 10 years old and i took lessons on that for several years before i picked up guitar i picked up guitar around 15 and i bought my first electric guitar from the sears catalog much like many people our age has that story right <laughs> um but the uh at that time you know i was seeing uh it was such a more, you know, and now I'm going to start sounding like the old fart, but it was such more an amazing time in that you could turn on like, uh, like the Merv Griffin show and see Chick Corea jamming with Herbie Hancock. Like, that's a real thing that happened. And I saw that and I was like, what is this? This is amazing. <laughs> you know? And so, so I had those influences starting to go before I picked up the guitar too. So then all of a sudden you have, uh, a, a piano playing kid trying to learn how to play Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock songs, picking up the guitar influenced by Jeff Beck and then, you know, Eddie Van Halen and all the guys that came. And so then, then you're dealing with like, uh, you know, I, I can look at my influences and to me, they're so much clearer, but maybe if they're not clear to other people for certain, at least some material, I'm a piano player first and then I'm a guitar player and I don't write from the guitar necessarily. I write from my brain. Right. You know, and that's the other thing that I always encourage people to do as composers is try and write from your brain. If you can't hear the music mm -hmm. and you, you might have to start with, you know, tinkling around with a few chord progressions to start just to have a framework to build something. Sure. But then, then write from your brain. Don't write from licks that, you know, like sit there that's in your brain. That's what one of your one of your fellow uh, touring guys, Ted Nugent, once said: is he has to sing the solo first before he can play it. So he can, you know, he, he lets himself create it from his body, and then I'll figure out how to do it. Right. Yeah, and, and you'll come up with much more original things that way. And it's funny because I do tend to write in guitar keys, but I, well, I'll put. It, let me go back up. I tend to wind up in guitar keys because I write things in my head that I can't play on guitar and I have to figure out how to play them. So then right. I'll change what I'm doing based on the guitar. Um, one of the reasons I, I've been using more and more uh, like pitch shifting pedals for different sections of songs is because on a record, I'll tune things differently because I have to be able to get across what I have in my head. Right. And then live, I'm like, how am I going to do this? So yep. there's several things where 
um, like a really basic, obvious version. Um, there's a song out there called The Watchman that's really popular that starts with, it's an acoustic uh, arpeggio intro. I'm doing it with a piezo live, but you can find this on YouTube, um, The Watchman, Travis Larson Band. And the, the chord that I wanted to play, I wanted to do like a D standard open chord in the vein of, I was on a full ELP kick. And I wanted to do something like Greg Lake would write on acoustic, you know, mm-hmm. and then it, then it bumps into this full on like funk, like South central LA hard thing. And then it's got this weird, like Moog synthesizer melody, which I used a whammy pedal for, but, but all that stuff comes into play as a, a nightmare live. Because on the record, I could just overdub stuff. I could retune acoustic guitars, do all this. Then, then live, I'm like, I have a whole pedal board wired up. Like tons of stuff on this pedal board are now configured so I can play that one song. Right. <laughs> it's like, okay, I have to have a pitch shifter going in routed to this patch, to this, this pickup. And then the electric side is still standard tuning. And I can flip it with a toggle switch and go between a D standard acoustic to a, a standard electric and then I have a whammy pedal hooked up so I can do this Moog synthesizers thing. And then I have a real guitar synthesizer on there to overdub that with a Moog. Oh. And it's also I can play one song. Now I'm using some of those tools for other songs, but, right. but I had to rebuild everything before that tour so I could do that one song. And, and it was going to have to get played. It was that, that's the artist thing. Like, oh, no, we're playing this. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's the, like, I could just say, well, we just won't play that one. It's, too, it's just too much, uh, too much BS to deal with. But no, no, it, this is awesome. We're going to play this. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's when you think, wow, Angus Young was a genius to have just decided I'm only going to write music where I can just take a guitar, plug it into a amp, and go. Right. You know, and, and I'll just fit every song we do around this equipment rather than I'm going to try to create something out of my head and then work the machinations to actually make the sounds. He just went, nope, I'm just going to be this and that's it. And my life will be easy forever. Yeah. Do you, do you guys know who Andy McKee is? Yeah. I, I couldn't be more jealous. Oh, you know what right. I mean? Because... I, and, and I, I love Andy. I, I, there's, I'll get into more reasons in a moment, but one of the things I'm so jealous about is, could you imagine if you, can, if you could tour the world by yourself doing your whole thing, like the whole vision you have in your head, if you could just do it by yourself with a single instrument? Yeah. You know, and how, I mean, just logistically and financially. And now, obviously, there's a whole nother magic to group, having a whole group of people and everything. But with the world, as we've talked about, the music business progressing mm-hmm. and stuff, man, if I could just get on a plane and, <laughs> and, and, if, and fill a, a theater by myself right. convincingly, you know, like I'll do clinics and I'll do little gigs with tracks and stuff. But you know, I'm not, I don't want to go out and do like a concert tour with backing right. tracks. That's not cool. So it's, it's like, uh, to, to be that guy, I so wish, <laughs> you know, it, it takes such big brass balls to be able to go out <laughs> by yourself and sit right? there and go, I'm going to entertain you solely with what I'm about to do. Just me. I mean, we, Mimi Fox came to the sanctuary not that long ago. One of the yeah. last shows that they had, and, and she's out there with a guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, and amp, and she's just keeping us all just 
completely captivated. It's riveting. And she'll go off into yeah. an extended solo with no backing underneath. And you can still hear the chord changes through her solos. And you're like, how is she even doing that? Right. You know? And, and it, it, I'm jealous and yeah. envious, but yet I'm also like, I, I, I need a band to hide behind a little. <laughs> right. Well, and there's something to be said for that. Cause I have done, I've done a lot of solo stuff in the clinic context and in, you know, when I've been off the road in the last two years, I've started doing more and more kind of more local things just to stay busy. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's uh, it's so much more weight, even if you're doing, uh, you know, when I'm doing, I, I usually play, I'll do maybe a few acoustic songs and a, a, some looping stuff and then a, a whole bunch of backing tracks. And I, I'm, I'm strategic the way, the way I do it. I never, I can't stand a guy playing to a backing track where he's backing up a recorded solo. So I don't never play any songs that right. have any of that. I'm always very careful to do something where I'm going to be doing something constantly from beginning to end that's hopefully interesting. Right. Um, and that's just my own rule. It's kind of the same rule that we have about technology where we learned from Rush that we don't have a guy in the back with a Macintosh who's like doing everything for us. We're, we're triggering, st triggering stuff on stage. We're responsible for it. If something, is, if something is sampled, we performed it and we don't have an extra hand to play it right now and we still have to trigger it on stage. That's, that's kind of a general rule, right? So in that way, it's our own little legitimacy. Whether you care or not, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want, but that's us. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, as far as... Um, uh, going out and playing solo versus playing with a group, there's so much more you can rely on with a group. And if somebody goes down and the rest of the band's still playing, mm -hmm. then it just becomes like an entertaining bump in the road. Right. I mean, I, I've played festivals where, I mean, Jennifer's rig went down at a Monterey Rock Festival one year and she was literally crawling around the front of the stage trying to fix stuff. And we were still going and it was the encore and it was a full double bass shred rocker. And you're just kind of like, those are the moments where you're just kind of laughing at each other, you know? Yeah. It's like looking well, over like, here we are. Yep. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you going to make it back by the chorus? No? Yeah. No? Okay. <laughs> we'll do, we'll just keep going. We'll pretend yeah. that you're playing, you know, but, um, but take a quick step back to uh, Andy McKee. I just want to give a shout out uh, because he, I love Andy because he is uh, the one guy out there that is truly and properly carrying the Michael Hedges torch. And uh, there's, there's nobody really else that really is doing that. And he's, I mean, he's to, to the point where he's learning material that nobody would have ever performed again on instruments nobody would have used again. Well, I mean, he, I remember seeing the first video of him, you know, back when I was, I think I was in high school. And it was a, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, that's right. not, it's not fair. And, and it was all the, it was the first time I'd ever watched someone on a YouTube video do the, I'm doing this in one take because right. to, to listen to him on the record, like art of motion or something, you go, Oh man, that's really pretty. That's really cool. But there's a little part of your brain that goes, and he's a hundred percent multi-tracking. And then you see him do it live in the videos. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, that's upsetting. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's such a sweet guy. And like, I, I've yeah. never seen him speak ill of anybody. And, and to be that talented uh, and that confident, like, like, you know, you were saying jet to go out there and just do it all and know you're going to kill it. Yeah. He's beautiful. And like, he's just, it, it's just, 
You know, here's the thing. Here's the trick to it all. You know, he plays video games. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we yeah, all? I was about to say, yeah, so do we. <laughs> so his, his brain is like used to like finding those tracks over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again until he can get, you know, <laughs> that's, you I know, it's you basically that. what music is. It's a big video right. game, right? It is. Yeah. I played Titanfall just before this, this interview. So I was sharp. It sharpens my mind. <laughs> but, you know, what? One of the things that I talked about in one of our recent podcasts is, is I've got this philosophy about music that's made with multiple people as opposed to just by yourself. And it's, it's not often in the world that you get to totally agree with somebody on anything. You know, we all like Rush, but as Trey said, we might not like the same things about Rush or the same songs or even the same eras or anything. But if we were all playing together and we'd practiced and we we're out there playing, we are in total agreement for that time. We're creating something that only exists in, 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 you know, in the air for the moments that we're doing it in real time. And we all have to, it isn't even like a football team where, you know, a couple of the guys agree and we're going to throw a pass and this guy agreed and everybody else just scattered and did what they were supposed to do. It's like we are working totally together. We are dropping everything else in life and going, we are really doing this. I'm supporting you. You're supporting me. And, we're in it together like, like you know, unless you're a SWAT team or, or a firefighter, maybe you, you don't get, you don't get that sense right. of we are in this, man. And we, we are, you know, I might have been arguing with you just before the show, but right now I love you and we agree. And that's one of the best, most human magical things about music for me. Well, in the level of support that you have to give each other on a finite level that, um, you know, people that don't play music may not really understand is going on. I mean, like, the, the hardcore focus of, so for instance, when we make a record, we, we make a mix for each member of the band without them on it so that they can practice to the band, right? right? And so when you do that, you get completely dialed and then you go to rehearsal and you're so dialed in, you can feel every little idiosyncrasy that we're doing, especially playing this music, you know? I mean, it's like, even if you don't quite know what's wrong, it's such a completely tight and, and co-supportive uh, relationship where it's like, you know, I mean, Dale's kick drum is just a few milliseconds behind where it usually is or whatever. <laughs> However they're feeling yeah. that night, you, you notice that stuff. And that's, that's the thing that you're, you know, you're kind of talking about. Of, it's, like, it's like the most intricate team sport communication you know, that you could possibly imagine on that level where you're not spoken. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anybody can tank it. And sometimes they do, and you don't even know it was them because you're so focused on stuff. You lose focus on what you're doing, focusing on them. And then all of a sudden they do something slightly different that triggers your brain in a different direction. And you didn't even realize it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like we have that kind of stuff with this this particular music because you know some of it's pretty complex. Where I'll totally tank something, and at the end of the night, Dale or Jen will be like, "That was my fault," and I'll be like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, "I started to go here and I went there," and and it's like my brain was so, you know, I wasn't consciously thinking about it. I was just you're so in the zone that you're reacting, and then you, you know, realize, the is, "Yes, it was your fault, man." That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was up with that? Yeah. So, but yeah, it, it's uh, to to your point. It's it's uh, a communication like no other, and it's a team sport like no other. You know, um, 
And, and like you said, I think, I think guys that can kind of understand it maybe are like guys on special forces teams and stuff like that. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know it's a completely different thing, but, um, I was really, really close to a, a former Marine for a while and saw action. And we've talked a lot about those kinds of things. And, uh, one of the things they said uh, after getting in the van with us for a tour was, you guys are just like Marines. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, I, I, you know, I feel stupid ever saying that because it's a completely different thing. But right. they're like, but, but, but you are. You get in the van and you guys all know exactly your place every day. And everybody kind of has their piece of the puzzle. And you get out and you work like a machine because we've been doing it for decades. Right. You know, and it's like, that's, that's what that is. That's the, what, that's what that training is. We go in now we're trying not to get killed versus playing music, right. you know, and that's why I feel sheepish ever saying a comparison like that. But I'm, what I'm saying is the brain centers, that the discipline using. is there. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the, the, the amount of focus that you have on your teammate and they're part of the puzzle that's a rare well, it's, thing. It's you guys against the world, you know? So if you go into a hostile environment, whether it's a bad crowd or, or a technical problem, you've got to band even more together, you know? And, and if, if it's a great reception, you kind of like take that as a group too. And uh, yeah, I mean, even if you don't always get along, you know, with like, yeah, you got to imagine even David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen have had those bond brother moments, you know, where they had to face adversity together and that did something for them. Well, and that's an interesting dynamic of being in a band too, is, uh, you know, I've been in a band for a couple decades and you, just like any relationship, a marriage or anything, you basically learn or you don't what parts of the relationship work and you either foster those and silence the others or mm -hmm. it, it's not going to last forever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you kind of learn this really drives me crazy. So let's try and avoid that. You know, and Rush is a perfect example of that band. Those guys, they're human beings. Yeah. They, they do things that drive each other crazy. You know, the, the joke that Neil was always the new guy is, <laughs> you know, inside those walls, I guarantee you that that's not really a joke because I'm in the same boat with my band where Jen and I went through drummers like Spinal Tap for years. And Dale has been in this band for 22 or 23 years and he's still the new guy. He will always be the new guy, you know, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have his piece of the puzzle and we don't love him to death. And sometimes he's the favorite of one of us and sometimes he's not, but we're, her and I are like the pit bulls and don't get between them because we've been together since the eighties. Right. You know, so it just is what it is, but those dynamics, you figure out what works and what doesn't, how not to get on each other's nerves and what you love about each other and how to be you know and that's just parts of growing up and maturing and but that's like it's the coolest feeling i when when all of that just works and you know i haven't been in in groups or with really anybody for for that length of time but but having that trust whether it's tenure or um just you know accelerated experience of you know there are times where we'll be, you know, our intro, you know, is playing or something. We're getting ready to go on stage and I'll look at my singer and go, I don't remember how to play this song. And then we just walk out on stage. Right. And it's just like, we know he's not freaking out because he knows that as soon as I'm get it's the, the downbeat hits, I'm going to remember. And like that level of confidence that he has, you know, bolsters mine when I don't have it and vice versa. And you just all kind of, 
you know, live in this, you know, mutual, I don't even know, know the right word, but it, but it's just this universe where you're a microcosm where everything is just going to work out as when you're that in sync. And that's a feeling that I haven't ever gotten in life outside of, of playing music with people. Right. And, and, and the thing about it is you have to know everybody is doing the best they can. Right. And that's obviously just on a maturity level of being a human being, but in a band or anything like that, you know, when they're not, you know, when they showed up and they aren't. And so those kind of things, you know, I've been really fortunate where, you know, of course, through 23 years, we've had a few moments where somebody drops the ball hard. I'm that guy sometimes. And uh, sometimes. No, that was my fault, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right. But, your fault. but at the end of the day, especially nowadays, we've been doing this so long that we know we're all doing the best we can and we know what the day was. And we also, you have a confidence, you know, there's a difference between ego and confidence. We all yeah, know that. For sure. Right? Um, and ego kills everything. Ego kills the band. It kills relationships. It kills your perceptions and persona to other people. Um, but confidence because you've just worked your ass off for, you know, hours upon hours upon hours to make sure that we're going to go into this situation. And if the ball gets dropped going way back to the early part of this podcast, it's the gear or it's a, yeah. something unforeseen. Right. Right. But, but we know we did the best we could and on six hours sleep after driving for 10 hours right now on stage, I'm doing, I'm giving it everything I've got. Right. And if I screwed up a couple of parts, it's, I, I, it was all I could do. I, you know, I was in it. And so we pretty much all know that now and we're all, you know, on, on the same team doing the best we can to make sure that, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, this, this band, it's, it's completely unbreakable to a level of which you guys can't even imagine. I mean, it's, right. it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I, like we talk about this, I, well, one of the things we, we've always been really private about our relationships and uh, people on our podcast keep asking, are you guys in relationships? Cause you wonder, you look at a guy like Rollins or people like us that are like nomads out there just playing music. It's like, mm -hmm. you guys have relationships. And, um, you know, J Jennifer, I, one of the things we're most proud of, Jennifer and I were in a relationship for 23 years. Oh, wow. And uh, we, you know, it's been years since we've been in that kind of a relationship, but we're siblings in a way. Sure. And we, we went to high school together and it, it's unbreakable. You can't, it's so unbreakable, we can't even break it. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> so going back to the- It comes across almost immediately when you, when you guys come out live, it's, I, I can tell there's a three-way dynamic, but the two-way dynamic between you and her is instant. And, and it's like you can almost see this unspoken thing going between you where you're purposely not even looking at each other, but I can tell you're totally looking at each other inside. Yeah, right. And you're, 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 you're feeling each other. You're, you're yeah, hearing each it, other. It comes across. It really does. I mean, you're, as soon as you start, it's like, oh, these guys are a thing. This, they aren't like warming up to this. They're like, you're just on. And that, that, and that goes back to the, it's a band. And that's one of our, so going back to having confidence, mm -hmm. it's a band. And, and we play with so many bands, including, I mean, even shows that you've seen where they're not, I don't want to say they're not bands, but you know what I mean? They're not oh, yeah. bands in yeah. the sense that they've lived together for 30 years. It's not a band. Yeah. Yeah, well, JT and, and, was out there drumming with everybody, and he's not everybody's drummer. Right. So right. So and, and there's great bands out there that aren't 
necessarily bands in the sense that we're talking about, but this right. is a band, like an effing band. In right. the like Raj was. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it has know. much the same, same dynamic. It felt a lot like that. No, where well, you, you, know, you know that all three of those guys were together, but you knew that Getty and Alex had known each other since high school. You could just tell. Right. And we're, you know, we're completely not afraid of, of each other on stage we're not afraid of making each other look stupid we're not afraid of <laughs> if we if somebody does fall you're going to try you know musically speaking you're going to try and help them we're right. all you sure. know you're you know it's one of one of the dynamics that jenna and i have on stage is she feels like like if somebody screws up and we like kind of jolt look at them she always feels like i'm that guy that's looking at them and and she feels like it you know it comes off like you're probably attacking or you're looking at me like i screwed that part up and i'm like but i'm looking at you like did i screw that part up <laughs> like, yeah the, the reality is as soon as the the floor falls out from under us i'm not sure what happened because you're so in the zone so you're immediately looking like what do we do what do yeah. we do right now how do we save this is it me right. is it you? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I told Trey this. Yeah, well, I used to have a band in high school. We had a rule that if somebody made a mistake, nobody look at him, right? Because we don't want to call attention to the fact that somebody made a mistake. And I was out playing a prom, and it got to the guitar solo for Open Arms, Journey, Open Arms, right? And so I step into the spotlight, complete brain fart. I've lost it. I don't know how to play guitar. I'm looking at this thing like it's a snake in my hand. I just cannot remember how to play the solo at all. And so I'm looking around for help. And now they're purposely not looking at me. So I cannot get anybody's eye. And I'm walking around and they're all like looking the other way. Right, right. <laughs> we had a discussion yeah. afterwards. Like maybe, maybe if somebody keeps screwing up for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds, maybe somebody looks at them at that point. Right, right. We've, uh, well, we were talking about that song ADD earlier, and uh, we've had some complete train wrecks on that song, and we've actually come up with a plan for them now. Right. Yeah. Like, wow. like, like there's a train wreck plan because the song is so angular anyway that there's a section that if, if that there's the train wreck section, and if we train wreck it, we have a plan to look at each other and what to go to. You know, That's so cool. it's like, it's like, you know, it's like little side routes of this isn't going to find its way back. Let's go here. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's a part in that song that decompartmentalizes basically what happened. And this is pre Pro Tools, the way we wrote this. We actually wrote it like on paper how to do this. But so it's got this groove riff that just keeps going and going and going and, and circularly. And what we did was we started taking notes out for like an eight bar measure or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so we start, it starts sounding stuttery and stopping and it starts sounding basically like, you know, like uh, if we were on this feed right here and it was cutting out. Right. You know? And so it's become a thing now where, you know, a little bit like uh, a rush thing where people cheer in the empty spots, but they're so angular they get the first one and then the second one, they kind of get in the last one. It's all screwed up, you know, <laughs> but you know, the point is that, um, you know, we have a contingency plan for when that goes South because every once in a while you lose focus and you know, it's, it's similar to, uh, if you guys, uh, I don't know if I remember the title of the song, but there's a classic King's X song where they do all that, those, stops at the end of that song it's a big oh, yeah. epic you know the one i'm talking about <laughs> they, they, they do those holds where it's just like dun, dun, dun. it's very random and it's like so tight and their whole thing is they don't look at each other and that's kind of our what we try and do with add so the audience realizes 
that's how dialed we are. Just for this one part, we're not going to look at each other. We're going to look at you, you know, but every once in a while, something glitches in your brain and all of a sudden it goes south. And then the decompartmentalization just, it, it, we're just going to let it completely de-evolve and then go to something else. So it sounds like we meant to do it. Right. <laughs> but yeah, just some of the, uh, the inside, you know, the, the ideals that you work on as a band when you've been a band for 30 years or, or 20, Jen and I have been put together for 30 years. The band's been together for 23 or something like that, you know. And That's so, quite an accomplishment in and of itself. Well, and going back to what we're, you know, the level we're doing, I mean, we're not a, we're not huge rock stars. We're a medium level band and we do, we do some magical big shows, but this is not a band that's making millions of dollars. This is a right. band that's barely hanging on and figuring out how do we keep doing this, you know? And so, especially uh, again, playing very non-commercial music and you're just out there forcing a fan base, you know, right. one person at a time. So. One of the best reviews I've, I, or I should say, um, most interesting reviews I ever read about you and your band was that it was like, uh, I, I hope I get this right. It was like a nine legged horse. It's oh. it, your band's like a nine-legged horse because it's it's immediately interesting, right? And it will pique the interest of anybody that comes in contact with it. But it's also capable of taking you to the depths of your imagination. Wow! And I was like, well, that's what that's that somebody put some thought into that one. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard that one. I've heard the one. There's one where it says we are, um, we're like a a three-bodied person with one. I'll be at really large brain or something like that. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's funny because, you know, I'm glad that stuff comes across because we don't ne necessarily try and go out there and, and write uh, overtly impressive music. We write music that we want to hear. And it's funny, Dale gives me a hard time sometimes, you know, jokingly that, our compositions are so uh, complexly disguised. So they're complex compositions, but they sound easy. Right. And, and that's kind of the, the whole thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you want to write stuff that is completely listenable and melodic, but um, you know, when you learn how to play it, you start realizing, oh, that, that was a seven count. Now that, oh, this is a three count. That's, but you want it to sound like you can just snap your fingers and sing a melody, you know? And, and we've always tried to do that. And we're, we're getting better and better at it in the last several records, I think. But um, that's kind of the whole crux of this band is write music that hopefully a lot of people would like, but that's always interesting to play and that you're proud of, you know? And that, that was kind of Rush's whole thing, right? So... Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I try to do too with, with my band Tone Castle is I want it to be to anybody, to, to, to the little kid, to the elderly person that doesn't really care about music. I want it to be a nice, listenable experience. But if you're a musician, I want you to go, holy cow, I can't, they just did that in, in seven and then they switched to five and then they switched to three. How do they keep that? Right. Keep track of that? And that's, I don't want you, it's, it's like the money at Pink Floyd. I don't want you to notice it's in seven until you try to figure it out. Exactly. And what's funny about that is there's always those kind of, uh, you know, you know, there's guys like you guys. And by the way, let me just say that this is one of the most uh, in-depth and fun, interesting podcasts I've done. And I've been doing a lot of these lately and they're not always good, um, but it's, it's really nice to hang with thoughtful guys that have intelligent conversation. <laughs> 
So, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. anybody's ever said that to us, Trey. <laughs> we got him cool. Let's get, we got to get off. Right, right. It's almost time to wrap this up. But um, so, yeah, the, the idea is that you're, you're trying to uh, write something that's musical, but keeps your interest in that you don't hate mm-hmm. playing it 400 billion times. Right. You know? and, and that's the thing is, too, is our music every single night is is challenging to us even some of the simple stuff so some of the times this you know we've heard a lot of guys say the slow simple ballads are some of the hardest things because you know it's all about the touch and if you hit the bad note it's like oh there's a bad note yeah whereas you know if you're playing something like you know cruise control or whatever and you play one of those lines and there's a bad note in that line you're never going to hear it it's like you know there's those musicians that come to the shows that are not like you guys and that's why i complimented you because sometimes you get those some of those weekend warriors as we all know as guitar players um there's you can bleep me on this but there's a aristocrat song called blues yeah that's all about this guy right it's the guy (laughs) He, yep. he, 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 this guy can barely play his way out of paper bag and he's got the biggest ego in the room. You know, you could be Steve Vai ne- standing next to this guy and this guy is looking at Steve Vai like, uh, I can do everything you can do. I just Man, didn't get he my can shot. play the hell out of slow dancing in a burning room. Right. So, so that guy <laughs> is the guy that looks at us and completely doesn't get it you know and there's a we get that sometimes where you get a guy going i don't see it it's also you know it's like i don't know those guys aren't very interesting they're kind of boring and and we get that guy sometimes because he's the guy that's not reading into the stuff that you guys have been talking about which is why i so appreciate you know your attention to detail and picking up on some of the things we work very very hard on you know because again the idea is it's all music it has to be musical Right. And that's been, you know, that's, that's the thing. One of the things I, I've taken from a guy like Steve Morris, who is complex, but he's an incredible um, arranger and composer where it's, it's music. It's, you know, most of that stuff is so beautiful and, and interesting to listen to, but it doesn't strike you as too, it, I'm listening to an exercise. Right. That's one of the things I, I've, I say around the studio is that, I don't care how technically you want to be, but let's hide the math because music is all math, right? It's all just numbers and relationships and frequencies and things. And there's a lot of people that think about that aspect of it. Even if they're not thinking about the numbers, they're thinking about those tight relationships and how they work. And I don't, I don't want the math to be obvious. I want that to be incidental, you know, the beauty and the joy and the feelings are what should be prominent. And then upon repeated listening, if you want to analyze it, sure. You know, if you analyze, a nautilus shell there's a lot of math in there but the first 10 times you look at it you're not going to think about that right Which right is, i think that's <laughs> why i mean i know jet and i've talked about this way too many times but that's what i want as a listener uh, the the albums that make the biggest impression on me are the ones that i can go back and listen to you know three or four times and go man that was really catchy or that was really just good music and then a year later i go man i didn't hear that that was really cool and, right. and over the years, I get more and more out of it. The gift that keeps on giving, I can like music all day long, but if a band can do that with a rec- with just one record, uh, but even a discography, if I can consistently get new things out of it over the years, that's, that's how you get into that you know, top 10 or top five favorite artists for me is, is to right. 
to do that. And what you're talking about, you're intentionally doing, I feel like a lot of times it happens accidentally. Sure. But I'm the type of person that I do it intentionally. So it's cool to hear that I'm not, <laughs> that I'm right, not right. the only person that goes, well, I want to do this because I want it to keep giving to somebody else. So Right. Well, and going back to what we were saying earlier about production too, one of the reasons you work so hard on layering all those things mm-hmm. is because, again, I started off as a, a guy that listened to records. You know, right. I, I want I want to sit there and pick out, you know, even um, – on the last record, the the last tune, the taking place, it starts off with these really weird kind of uh, surreal sounds that I I was totally trying to do a, like a Peter Gabriel thing. Okay. It completely doesn't sound, it's, you know, in no way, shape or form would you ever look at that and go, this is a Peter Gabriel song. But if you right. listen to the intro mm-hmm. of that song and you think about it, in the context of Peter Gabriel wearing like a crazy helmet with a fisheye lens on his face and climbing around some jungle gym on stage doing weird stuff. You go, Oh yeah. Oh, I hear, I hear where that's going, but it, but it's, it's ear candy. It's, it's just to make, you know, it's something interesting where you've got crazy things ping ponging around. And then when the, the rock band comes in, that stuff stays there for three Mm -hmm. minutes under the song but it, but it's not the focal point. But it's just, it's just so you can have another palette of, you know, some kind of texture, and and uh, and that goes back to what you're saying is just growing up with albums and really, you know, feeling like care was taken. Yeah. You know, and and so that's that's where that all comes from, and that's uh, I, I'm I'm so glad that you know some people appreciate and get that as much as I do because. You know, it's funny too. Generally speaking, when you get done with a record, you're really sick of listening to it and you, you get it worked up to where you could perform it live and you figure out all the technical aspects, but then you don't want to hear it again. But then you get after a while, if you go back and check it out like a year or two, you kind of forget all the stuff you did and you've just been right. like the live thing in your head. But if you can put it away and listen back, you're, it's almost like you're a fan again. Yeah. Right? You know, and you know, man, what was I thinking when I did that? Yeah, <laughs> like, and I, I know Steve Vai does that, and he actually encourages people to do it, which it's always been kind of a taboo thing, like, oh, I listen to my music, you know, because like, it sounds arrogant and kind of, you know. No. Listening to the flow that came through at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. like, I want to listen, I want to make music that I want to hear. Right. But, but he'll, he'll actually listen. He goes, you know, like when I'm out driving, I'll listen to my records. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and, and, and I'm sure he's checking stuff out that he didn't play yesterday, you know. Sure. But, but you should be able to do that and you should be able to learn from it and you should be able to enjoy it and think, you, you know, one of the great gifts as a musician too is when you create these things, they're yours for life. Right. That's, that's amazing to me. That's like... Jennifer and I used to, we used to do these Borders books and music tours back when that was a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we had not really much of a fan base and we would do them as a duo and build up a town enough. We do tours and if we could get a town built up enough where we could bring the band, then we would do that. So that was kind of a way in before we started doing guitar center clinics and Sam Ash clinics and all that. Now that's kind of what you do, but, um, we would go there and, uh, you know, it was like you, you, were, you were baking bread and selling it in a way. You were creating something out of nothing and trying to give it to people that didn't know they needed it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and that's kind of, so when you go back and you listen to your own music, you realize you, you, you baked this, this bread, but it's good for life. This is always your song. It's mm -hmm. always going to be there. You can have it for, until the day you die. You could, you could play that song. You could play it for people. You can enjoy it. You, you know, and, and so that's one of the things that I kind of never forget. I, I think to myself, because it's really hard to do this. I mean, you guys know what I, I mean. You, when you're in the thick of creating, it's, it's miserable. It's, you know, there's, there's highs to it. There's the initial spark of the high of the idea where you go, oh, this is going to be cool. I'm excited about it. And that's what drives you to, to do it. Mind the whole time yeah. is the goal. Let's keep remembering that. that. No, it's going to be great if I can just get to the end. Yeah. And, and getting to the end is miserable. All those little things we talk about to the point where if people don't make music, you don't realize you're tweaking like one dB on one EQ setting on one symbol of uh, the mix of like a, you know, like a 50, 60 track mix on a song that you've painstakingly mic'd every instrument and recorded and done 50 takes of, and they just have no idea what goes into that, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks to create something at the level of which people go, that sounds like a perfect thing. It's, uh, you know, it's really professional or whatever. It takes so much. And then they say, that. oh, you're so talented. Like, well, you were given that talent. So that's easy for you. Right. No, I had to work for all that talent. I had to, I, I struggled to make it sound that easy. I promise. Right, right. And talent is such an interesting thing, you know, but, but just to, to close that point, you know, all that work and it gives you something. At the end of the day, you have something that's yours forever. And so I can always, you know, look back or even look forward. If I'm still physically able, I can go up and I can play a song that I wrote 20 years ago that people like yeah. and go, you know, it's still me. It's still me playing this song and people are still digging it and new people are still jumping on board because for some reason, we're just, you know, being an independent band and not jumping on a lot of bandwagons and not taking a lot of commercial uh, avenues that we probably should have, but we're too, you know, purist to do. We've, it's, it's been a long road of gaining a following, mm -hmm. you know, so. Um, it's tough but, to have integrity and success at the same time. It's a yeah. fine line. And yeah. It's, it's a hard thing, but you guys have definitely maintained the integrity and, you know, your discography is, is so impressive. I'm sure you can still go back and listen to your first albums and go, you know, I, I wouldn't maybe do that now, but man, that was good. That was solid. It's like Steve Vai going back to the Attitude song. I'm sure he thinks he's way beyond that, but that's still a great song. I still love that song. Well, and to, to your point and my current point, uh, when he performs it live now, it's fresh. Mm -hmm. Right. So that goes, that goes back to the, it's his for life. And, and even like rush is a perfect example of when you saw those, I think I'm going ball. Oh no, sorry. <laughs> you see those guys on the more recent tours playing songs that they did 40 years ago. And it sounds like them now. And it's obviously modern technology and a huger sound and mm -hmm. fresh energy infused into it. And they play maybe a little heavier and maybe a little more sluggish in a, a way that makes it more rocking, even though it's just, it's just, you know, maturity, but it's, it's just as magical, if not more, because it's contemporary. It's like you're taking something, then they still own that. They can give it to you in a fresh perspective. And, and that's so cool. It's like the gift that keeps on giving, you know? Well, yeah, Fly By Night in 2008 on the Snakes and Arrows tour was not Fly By Night. 
on the record. Right. Exactly. But, you know, still cool and still yeah, great. Right. to Like at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Like you get in a room and you see those guys do that. And it's not like you're disappointed that they're doing it a slightly lower key or slightly slower or whatever. It's actually, you're going, oh man, this is like a little bit heavier and it's a little, yeah. but it's still, they're right there and they're doing it. And there's some magic to that, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think that never gets old. And, um, that's a great, great thing about music. In addition to the communication aspect of, you know, for a completely selfish personal thing, you work your ass off on this stuff as hard as you can, but it doesn't go away. Right. You know, that's the beauty of it, especially now with, you know, digital and all that. You can really, you know, it's not as scary as it used to be. Will it go away? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to lose our records in a universal fire, so. Right, yeah, exactly. I can always go on the cloud and find all my stuff. Somebody owns it somewhere, you know. Right, well, not to mention all the bootleg recordings of it that have been made that are out there on somebody's iPhone that you don't even know about. Yeah, exactly. They're enjoying. We have to just kind of like live with that now that they're out there. And so the imperfection that we, that we try so hard to avoid in the studio, at some point you have to like birth the song and then let go and go, I guess what's going to happen is going to happen now. And that's the only way to look at it. You can't think about the, the guy on uh, YouTube that doesn't get that somebody was using a $50 camera to, to videotape you and it was distorting. You have to think about the guy that's at home watching these bootlegs because he loves it so much and it's something nobody else has. Right. And that's, that's the only guy that matters. I, I had, uh, I mean, I've, I've got all kinds of crazy stuff and just commercial bands, you know, I, some of my favorite bands as a kid, just like the Rolling Stones and the police and bands like that. And I had uh, a radio show that was broadcast with the police live in Boston from the time I was maybe 10 years old that I used to listen to like crazy. And it was them in the raw punk stage right. and people would People could say it's technically awful. I, I get so rocked up when I listen to it. I want to like run around the block. Right. And then they eventually released it as a record like 25 years after I, already, I had it on a cassette, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but that kind of stuff, I get what it is to be a fan and I get what it is to have something that only you have that, you know, is, has magic for you. Whether the band is like, oh, that's a, a great production or not. You know, I, I do understand that viewpoint of it. As long as, you know, you ignore the guys that don't get it, right. don't get dragged down by them. You know, we could talk all night. We've kept you so lo so much longer than we said we would because it's just been so enjoyable. But I, I do want to give you back your evening. I know you haven't had dinner yet. Yeah. Can we can we get you to come back some other time and talk about some of the uh, incredible uh, experiences you've had on the road with some of these people you've toured with and stuff? Oh, you guys, honestly speaking, I would do this with you guys anytime. You guys, uh, it's it's so nice to have uh, an intelligent conversation with human beings that understand. Uh, the musician life and um, I really appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, I like I said I you know I, I vet these things a little bit and I checked out your your previous podcast and you're doing really wonderful stuff and, and putting some cool cool things out into the ether so I appreciate it well that's so kind of you to say see I told you Trent <laughs> <laughs> somebody cares like this but you know we've we've soldiered ahead anyway <laughs> somebody cares I promise well, Trey and I used to have conversations like like this in the studio. I would be working on something. He said, "You know, we should just do a podcast. I think people will like this." And that's 
exactly where it started and he well, just kind of egged me into it so well, this is a solid conversation this is going to keep people busy for a while because we we really got into it and uh, and it was a lot of fun i appreciate you having me yeah it was a lot of fun yeah it was awesome so thanks for joining us everybody on gear and gigs don't forget to like and subscribe check us out on instagram facebook twitter and of course youtube and we will see you all again next time for travis larson and trey hawkins i'm jet stone you guys have a good one